This episode is brought to you by Viori Clothing, spelled V-U-O-R-I, Viori. I've been wearing Viori at least one item per day for the last few months, and you can use it for everything. It's performance apparel, but it can be used for working out. It can be used for going out to dinner, at least in my case. I feel very comfortable with it. Super comfortable, super stylish, and I just want to read something that one of my employees said. She is an athlete. She is quite technical, although she would never say that. I asked her if she had ever used or heard of Viore, and this was her response. I do love their stuff. Been using them for about a year. I think I found them at REI, first for my partner, t-shirts that are super soft but somehow last as he's hard on stuff. And then I got into the super soft cotton yoga pants and jogger sweatpants. I live in them and they too have lasted. They're stylish enough I can wear them out and about. The material is just super soft and durable. I just got their Clementine running shorts for summer and love them. The brand seems pretty popular, constantly sold out. In closing, and I'm abbreviating here, but in closing, with the exception of when I need technical outdoor gear, they're the only brand I've bought in the last year or so for yoga, running, loungewear that lasts and that I think look good also. I like the discreet logo. So that gives you some idea. That was not intended for the sponsor read. Uh, That was just her response via text. Viori, again spelled V-U-O-R-I, is designed for maximum comfort and versatility. You can wear it running. You can wear their stuff training, doing yoga, lounging, weekend errands, or in my case, again, going out to dinner. It really doesn't matter what you're doing. Their clothing is so comfortable and uh, looks so good, and it's it's non-offensive. You don't have a huge brand logo in your face. You'll just want to be in them all the time. And my girlfriend and I have been wearing them for the last few months. They're men's core short, K-O-R-E, the most comfortable lined athletic short. Is your one short for every sport. I've been using it for kettlebell swings, for runs, you name it. The Banks short, this is their go-to-land to see short is the ultimate in versatility. It's made from recycled plastic bottles. And what I'm wearing right now, which if I had to pick one to recommend to folks out there, or at least to men out there, is the Ponto Performance Pant. And you'll find these at the link I'm going to give you guys. You can check out what I'm talking about. But I'm wearing them right now. They're thin performance sweatpants, but that doesn't do them justice. So you got to check it out. P-O-N-T-O, Ponto Performance Pant. For you ladies, the women's performance jogger is the softest jogger you'll ever own. Viore isn't just an investment in your clothing, it's an investment in your happiness. And for you, my dear listeners, they're offering 20% off your first purchase. So get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. It's super popular. A lot of my friends I've now noticed are wearing this, and so am I. VioriClothing.com forward slash Tim. That's V-U-O-R-I clothing.com slash Tim. Not only will you receive 20% off your first purchase, but you'll also enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75 and free returns. So check it out. VioriClothing.com slash Tim. That's V-U-O-R-I clothing.com slash Tim. And discover the versatility of Viori Clothing. This episode is brought to you by Tonal, T-O-N-A-L. Get ready for the smartest home gym you've ever seen. That's a men's health headline about Tonal, folks, and that gives you the gist. If you're wondering about the smart part, Tonal's homepage also features a quote from the New York Times. Quote, the machine knew my strength better than I did. End quote. More on that in just a minute. By eliminating traditional metal weights, Tonal can deliver 200 pounds of resistance in a device smaller than a flat screen TV. Tonal mounts on your wall with no floor space required. 
I've had a tonal unit now for six to 12 months, which I got after a number of very close friends recommended tonal. And it allows me to do things I would normally need a much larger gym for, like cable chop and lift or rotational exercises, things I wrote about in the four hour body. And it allows me to do these things that are nearly impossible otherwise, like eccentric loading, which I'll mention later. Tonal is precision engineered and designed to be the world's most advanced strength studio and personal trainer. It uses breakthrough technology like adaptive digital weights and AI learning together with the best experts in resistance training so you get stronger faster. So what are these adaptive digital weights? Tonal's patented digital weight system makes thousands of calculations a second to deliver you a smooth weightlifting experience using advanced electronic motor technology. Total lets you adjust the weight in one pound increments, something that was never possible with traditional dumbbells. It's easy to dial weights up and down with the touch of a button right in the grip itself. It's pretty cool. Tonal also has built-in dynamic weight modes like chains, eccentric, that's E-C-C-E-N-T-R-I-C, and their patent-pending SmartFlex technology so that you can experiment with more ways to get stronger, faster, without the hassle of extra equipment like chains and bands. And it, once again, fits on the wall like flat-screen TV, so you can make the best use out of the smallest footprint in your home or garage, wherever you end up putting it. So try Tonal, T-O-N-A-L the world's smartest home gym for 30 days in your home. And if you don't love it, you can return it for a full refund. Visit www.tonal.com, that's T-O-N-A-L. And for a limited time, get $100 off of the smart accessories when you use promo code TIM100 at checkout. That's www.tonal.com, promo code TIM100. Tonal, be your strongest. Optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now what is in the perfect time? What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. Hello, boys and girls, ladies and germs. This is Kevin Rose. Welcome to the Kev Kev Tim Tim Show, otherwise known as the Random Show. Kevin Rose, I have him here. How are you, sir? Dude, you sound just like me. You said you said you're Kevin Rose. I'm stoked, man. We're back back doing the random show again. This is going to be one that I hope I can make it through. If you make it to the end without vomiting onto the screen, we will consider it at least a success. Yes. And we require, I think, some context for people listening. Got a text from you about 45 minutes ago asking if we might be able to reschedule. What are the reasons for that? Not to name any any so, people's names, but we can talk about we won't compounds. name. Yeah. Okay. Compounds. So you and I, we, we tend to, I mean, you're the one that got me into this stuff. It's really your fault. Dubious honor. Um, you, you, you got me into the whole scene of trying out these different compounds and, and seeing what happens on the body. And actually, you know what? It's, it's a, it's a really good thing. It's a good story because I am going to hopefully live longer. Not that I want to have my main, I don't want to live forever. I'm not one of those people that is like, you know, waiting for the flippening to happen where AI takes over and we just live forever. Like, I don't care about that, but I want to have a good, long, healthy life for my little girls. Right. So I pay close attention to all the different biomarkers. And one of the things that has always been an issue for me has been glucose disposal. So you and I, we sit next to each other. I don't actually, I don't know how you're, let's just say a healthy person. I don't know how your glucose <laughs> levels are. I know you used to eat all those bear claws. So True. You do love oh, bear claws. I do. I do. So <laughs> the issue I have is if I sit down next to a healthy person, we both eat the exact same carbohydrate. 
If we're wearing a continuous glucose monitor, I will spike higher and the glucose will stay elevated in my blood longer than most people. That's not good. You don't want elevated glucose levels. It's what they would call like close to a pre-diabetic. So, you know, I just need to watch that stuff pretty carefully. Cardiovascular exercise is huge. High intensity interval training, zone two training, all that stuff is really helpful. But there are also some compounds that you can take that help here. So one of them is called a Zempic, which is this subcutaneous shot that you do. So you just shoot yourself anywhere you want. I just do it in my belly. And it lowers your glucose levels. It's pretty amazing. It just works really well. And actually, the some of the other benefits, it's been shown in studies to be cardioprotective. So a physician that I work with actually prescribed it to me. And they said, hey, the one thing you may want to worry about, like it can cause a little bit of nausea in some people. I'm like, okay, like, you know, and they're like, you may want to ramp this up, right? So the little like syringe thing that it comes with, you can twist the little knob and you can choose how much you want to inject. And like, I had a buddy that was doing it too. And he's like, okay, just do 0.25 for like four weeks. And then you can work up to 0.5 and then eventually one milligram. And I'm like, well, all the benefits, and the, I should say another benefit is that the, the number one side effect is that people lose weight as well. So like you lose like your beer gut, you get slimmer, you have better glucose control. I mean, it sounds like a win, win, win across the board until it comes down Except to the vomiting side of things. The misery, the <laughs> yes. long and lean misery. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I just kind of jumped a step like yesterday, <laughs> you know, I had a couple of beers and I'm like, you know, I just should just go in. Cause like, I just don't want this to go straight to my I gut. Love that it's combined. Just, I want to juxtapose here. This is worth highlighting after a few beers <laughs> continue. Well, I dude, first of all, I live in Portland, Oregon, best breweries out here. It is very hard in the summertime. I bet it, there's been a major heat wave here, Tim. And better stay I, hydrated with that alcohol. <laughs> you better stay hydrated. <laughs> All jokes aside, thankfully we got through the heat weave and it is the, the beers here are phenomenal. So it was 4th of July, you know, there was a lot of fun stuff happening. So basically I just go into the, where the fridge is and I pull it out of the fridge and I inject myself and I turn it to 0.5 right away. I'm like, I'm going to skip that 0.25 stuff. Let's just like jump into the benefits. Right. So I did it and I felt fine. I was like, you know, no big deal. Waited an hour, two hours. Everything was fine. Went to bed Woke up at about 4 a.m. just wanting to vomit. (laughs) Just just so bad. And just, I haven't laid on the ground of my bathroom in a very long time. Maybe since when I was doing my old Dignation podcast, like like 15 years ago or something. It was not good. So I just kind of stayed in bed this morning, called off a couple of my meetings, and you made a good suggestion on something that decreases nausea. I did that. And here we are. Good to go. <laughs> good old Zofran. It helps. Also yeah. really important side note, uh, generally when people use something like ketamine in a clinic, they'll give you Zofran beforehand. So it, uh, it does work. Can work really well. Oh, that's right. Because ketamine causes a little bit of nausea as well at the higher it doses, can. right? It can. Yeah, very different purposes. As far as I know, ketamine will not give you a six pack. <laughs> but Yeah. <laughs> Do you have glucose issues? Uh, I, not really. Not really. I mean... You're, so you're just like, you wake up in the morning, if you were to test yourself, you're like 75, 80, 85. I would have to take a look. I mean, you have to keep in mind also, I haven't worn a continuous glucose monitor since, check this out, 2008 or 2009. Oh man, you're that missing out. That was Gen 1 Dexcom. You could not get it unless you were a type 1 diabetic. And the insertion procedure was terrible. 
and the device itself, you had to track the readout on a proprietary device. There was no integration with anything like a smartphone or an iPhone. And it was really helpful. I will say that most of the takeaways were pretty straightforward. (laughs) It's like, yeah, when you eat a, a huge meal, even if it is quote unquote good food, you really have this gigantic bolus of carbohydrate intake, uh, even if it isn't carbohydrate, really high protein, still spikes. So most of it was kind of self-evident. And after a few weeks, I was like, I think I have a pretty good read on what my triggers are, including foods that I respond to strangely. So I didn't feel the need to wear it continuously past a few weeks. Oh man, I remember when we went to the movies and you first had that thing on and you had this, back then it was massive. You had this massive, like third party, like little mini tablet with your whatever those little <laughs> yeah. device was. Looked like a pager that was like, on my hip. Yeah, yeah, like a huge. Pa- I'm like, what are you doing? Like, no one had ever. I'd never heard of those devices before. Long time ago. And and you're right. The procedure back then was this massive needle. They, they would they wouldn't even hide it. They didn't put it behind any like thick plastic so you wouldn't see it. Like you would watch the needle go in, yeah. inject another little thing into you, and then you would have to manually pull the needle out. It was so brutally invasive and now oh dude you gotta try the yeah, new ones they're amazing one. you don't even know what's happening i haven't put it in yet okay but the cool. old dexcom if someone can think of like a barbecue kind of two-tined pitchfork <laughs> that you use to like flip steaks or something it kind of looked like a miniature version of that it was two long prongs that were kind of like needles that you would have to push into your abdomen laterally and they were long. right, and there was no spring loaded. No, no, no. There it was wasn't no like like today's. You push a button; it's one press button, and you pull it off, and yeah, it's done. None of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, one of many things I did for the four hour body. So, are you planning on continuing to take what is the name of the drug again? I know that Ozempic. How do you spell that? Uh, Google Ozempic. <laughs> O-Z-E-M-P-I-C, I believe. Something like that. Yeah, O-Z-E-M-P-I-C. We are not recommending that you use this, people, just to be Oh, I mean, you'd have to get a prescription for your doctor, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so here's the deal. Like, I, I feel that, well, we can say it, because Atia has had a, a podcast on this compound and a couple other glucose-controlling compounds. Yeah. Are you taking metformin? Um, Atia... I am not taking metformin. Why not? I think that, well, I mean, the the thing is, like you, Tim, it's like, we, we just have to listen to the scientists and what they're saying. And that, for me, is all the the scientists and people, analysts that Atia trains or works with and and, and it is a, a company. So um, they look at that and say, yeah, there is a benefit for people with type 2 diabetes, but it's not necessarily clear if you don't have diabetes, if there's a health benefit there. Yeah. So I think it's, it's too, too early. You know, you're talking about beer consumption, just to talk about the putting life in your years instead of years in your life side of the equation. Uh, can I share with you an, an alcoholic beverage that I become quite fond of? Yes. This is new for me, new for me. So here's the problem. One problem that I have is I don't drink beer. It just does not really affect my system very well. So what ends up happening is I'll go out with someone like you, and you'll be like, yeah, let's have some beers. And I'll be like, mm, I don't really have beer. Okay, what do you want? I'll have a gin and soda. And then we're going kind of gin and soda for one beer, gin and soda for one beer, which ends in tears. Like it just yes. <laughs> it ends, Oh, that's the worst. It yeah. ends really, really poorly. And then I was approached by this company 
to sponsor the podcast, and I'd never heard of them, June Shine. And June Shine makes hard kombucha. Had not heard of them, but I was like, okay, well, I like kombucha. I do, in fact, enjoy alcohol, even though it's fallen out of fashion. When people are like, I only use ketamine. I'm so evolved. I'm like, well, we should talk about that. But is that what people uh, say people say that you at parties, yeah, people are trying really to, people are trying to use, use ketamine. I don't use alcohol. Yeah, that's that's turned into this substitute for alcohol, which you know may or may not have a place, but. Suffice to say, I don't have ketamine in my house for a lot of reasons. <laughs> we could get into those. It has a place, but I will have this right here, this June Shine, and it comes in yeah, many I've different flavors. It. Yeah, it's great. And so I reached out to my team to ask them about the company, and <laughs> one of them was like, oh yeah, I know June Shine. I have three boxes of it right next to me. <laughs> and I thought to myself, well, okay, that tells me something, because my team I consider to have very good taste, not literally, although they might have that too. And it's great because it's carbonated. It has, I believe, 6% alcohol by volume. And you can get a nice buzz from one because it's highly carbonated and certainly also has alcohol. And I just don't seem to have the hangover nor the losing arms race of doing like gin and sodas per each other person's beer. It's been really nice. So this has turned into more of a recreational, light alcoholic beverage for me. I'm a, I'm a huge fan. Yeah, I didn't... The one thing I was curious about is what, how much sugar were... I always see these types of beverages at the store, like these hard kombuchas or the hard seltzers, all, all that stuff, you know? Yeah. And I hadn't tried that White Claw before, but I tried it for the first time. Have you tried the White Claw? <laughs> The White Claw. I haven't tried the White Claw. It's like the Facebook. The, yeah. the White Claw. Uh, I haven't. But uh, how did you feel after that? It's not that good. It's not that good. It, it's. I, I get why it's. It, it's like. I don't know. I feel like when we were growing up, it was what was the hot thing? Like the wine coolers. It's essentially yeah. kind of like a wine cooler type Zima's. style drink. Wasn't the Zima? Yeah, oh my gosh, that's the first alcohol I ever got drunk <laughs> off of Zima. That's so funny. Back but in yeah, three point six grams of uh, sugar. That's not so bad. I'm looking at uh, at their site right now. Yeah, yeah. It's allowed me to be socially to socially drink alcohol without just crucifying my brain cells, and I've really enjoyed it. You want to see a bad decision? You want to? Uh, I can share a bad decision with you. Yeah. Okay. A bad decision is this mug I'm going to show you. This is a mug that I bought some time ago as a gift for my girlfriend, and as context, just so people don't lose their minds completely. My girlfriend will often text me various things like, calm down sugar tits. She calls me sugar tits for reasons that are unclear to me, but sometimes she'll call me sugar tits. So I thought it would be very funny when I was walking through this random store and I saw some people chuckling at a mug. And so I bought this mug. I'm going to show it to you first. Can you see what this says? Yeah, it says calm your tits. <laughs> calm. It says calm your tits. And uh, it has two little dots in the O and the U of your, so you can imagine that. And then, lo and behold, uh, we end up reuniting because we were traveling separately. And in between the time that I bought this and had like put it aside for her in a place where I knew she would find it, the day before we were to meet up, we got into this huge fight. <laughs> and so then the next day, <laughs> I somewhat forget about this gift. She thought you put that out there? <laughs> well, I did put it out there, but it was two weeks earlier when no, everything was groovy. And uh, so then she pulled it out and she's like, calm your tits. Hmm. Thank you, babe. And I was like, uh-oh, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. 
<laughs> I'm getting pulled into the deep water. Oh, I did this to myself. I feel like she would find that funny under normal circumstances. Under normal circumstances, she would have found it hilarious. Yeah. But the fact that we had a heightened, let's call it a, a heated, a passionate discussion within 24 hours that had not yet been fully resolved led to calm your tits not being as funny as I had hoped. Yeah, that's fair. So, so good decision, bad decision. What else do we have on the roster? Oh, man, Kef-Kef. lots of stuff to talk we, about. We got a lot. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things we can, we, we did put out a little tweet asking for people's questions, lots of questions around blockchain and NFTs, all that crazy stuff. We can save that for later. We can go and stay on the health front. You want to do that or do you want to go into some of the blockchain stuff? Up to you. <laughs> you know, since I will be mostly just staring at you with a blank expression once we get to all of the technical details of crypto and blockchain, I'd say let's stick with health for a little bit longer. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm curious, actually, you know, looking at the video now, we're going to put this video out or no? Be video as well? Yeah, why not? I mean, yeah, so you got a little like device up above your doorframe behind you. Yes. Yeah, that, that little guy right there. Yeah. Um, so one of the questions that I had for you actually is like, you know, we're not as young as we used to be. <laughs> and for me, flexibility has been such an important thing to focus on and Mm -hmm. flexibility with supporting muscles to, so that when you do get flexible, you're just not just like a blob. And I'm curious, you know, I saw that machine hanging up behind you. Is that for flexibility? What do you do? Like, what's your focus these days on the training side? Are you in as you're getting older, are you incorporating more around like the not longevity, but more around just less mass and more just, you know, practical, like old people stretching. Like, what are you, what are you doing? <laughs> Watching a lot of Richard Simmons videos. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I am. So, for people who can't see this, there is a pull-up bar within the door jams behind me, and so the design is such that as you pull down on it, the physics of the engineering cause it to sort of buckle outwards without damaging the inside of the door frame. So it's a cool design. It's a really Hmm. elegant design. You can find them on Amazon. And I use that for hanging and uh, really just decompressing or compressing, depending on how you look at it, my back scapula and also just relieving my lower back and hip flexors from sitting for too long a period of time. My priorities from a training perspective right now, I would say, I can just lay it out pretty simply, would be conventional weight training once or twice a week, probably no more than that. It's really to maintain muscle mass, perhaps build a bit of muscle mass, and also to make it a little easier to maintain healthy glucose levels, right? So if you are increasing your muscular mass particularly if you're doing these workouts prior to a meal, your glucose disposal is just going to be improved. Like uh, GLUT4 transporters and so on will be more uh, effective at doing their job. So let's say once or twice a week. On top of that, right now, my activities are kind of seasonal these days. And they're seasonal in part because I really want to identify types of exercise that not only I enjoy, but that I can do with my girlfriend. And that's actually a byproduct of a conversation at one point with an incredible trainer, performance coach, and all around hilarious guy named Kelly Starrett, who's a beast. Like when he turned, I think when he turned 40, 
he celebrated by running the quad dipsy, which is an ultra marathon. By the way, he weighs like 220 or 230 pounds. He's extremely muscular. Crazy. Doing a standing backflip and like cleaning and jerking 350 pounds or something like that. That's how he celebrated his 40th birthday, just to give you an idea of who this guy is. It's a party. Yeah, it's a party. And <laughs> great guy, the ready state. You can look him up, Kelly Starrett. And he was telling me about how he has prioritized activities with his wife over everything else. He's like, once you have kids, you've got a family, you've got business demands, anything that you choose outside of that is pulling you away from time with your wife or your family. And so he's really tried to prioritize that. And before I have kids, I'm hoping to develop some of those habits. So for instance, rock climbing is something that I'm doing more and more and absolutely love for basically everything that involves pulling, you're going to check the box. And mm -hmm. uh, I really, really enjoy it. It's very cognitively challenging too. I mean, it's like putting together like an upside down Tetris. Yeah. I mean, well, they call them, they literally call them problems, right? If yeah. you're bouldering, they, they're exactly. called problems because you have to sit there and spend 15 minutes thinking about what you're going to do before you even attempt it. You yeah, know? exactly. Exactly. I really enjoy that. And so we'll, we'll go to the climbing gym two or three times a week. Usually the, the lifting will happen after the climbing in the same gym. Kettlebell swings once or twice a week. I'm going to get around to answering your macro question. These are all mostly strength and muscle mass focused. Yeah. But the climbing does help with mobility. So I would say that my focus, more than focusing on flexibility, which invokes this image of passive stretching, you know, laying on the ground with your legs split and like reaching forward and just kind of hanging out there for 60 seconds, 90 seconds. They're the Van Damme moment. Van Damme. Van Damme. Don't everybody wants to do the Van Damme though. Everybody wants to do the Van Damme. This is true. However, where I have had what people would consider the greatest flexibility gains and also just the most practical transfer of seeming more limber. It's been through weighted mobility. So acro yoga, for instance, involves a lot of pressing, handstand work, inversion, a lot of pressing. And in the process of doing something like acro yoga for the legs and the hips or rock climbing for less so the upper body, but more the hips and the way that you rotate to improve your reach mm -hmm. and so on has been really, really helpful. There's something called Jefferson curls that you can do and you must do very safely. I describe how to do it via someone named Coach Summer, who is the former men's team, men's national team coach, how to do something called a Jefferson curl, which is effectively a slow, rounded back, stiff leg deadlift. And you're using mm. very light weights, but you kind of roll down almost as you would do in a yoga class, vertebra by vertebra. Mm -hmm. And when you get more comfortable under weight in these end ranges of movement, then your body effectively says, oh, okay, now that we've developed some strength in this end range, we can extend the end range. Mm, and interesting. So, so it opens up naturally a little bit once you've got yeah, that supporting structure there. Exactly. And it relates to the Golgi tendon reflex and all sorts of things. But when I'm trying to develop flexibility, my question is usually, how do I actually develop strength at my current limitation. And that's also part of the reason why something called PNF is very effective for stretching, which is a more active sort of contract and release based form of stretching. What is PNF? What does that stand for? Proprioceptive neuromuscular facilitation, I believe. It's been a few decades since I've thought of it. But PNF, 
usually, I shouldn't say usually, but it's very often involves partner stretching where someone would take, for instance, your leg extended, you'd be laying on your back, one leg is extended above you. They would push it forward until you reach the end range of your hamstring. You would then push against them for say seven seconds and then relax. And then they would increase the stretch and you would mm. go a bit further and then you'd repeat that. Is this what you see like uh, NBA players, like before they're about to go into a game, you see them kind of laying on their back and they have a trainer come in and they're pushing the leg in. There's always a trainer kind of supporting the leg and pushing it in They're pushing against it. Is that the same type of stretching or is that different? Good question. I would suspect it's different just because PNF can be taxing and you would spread it out much like you would spread out weight training. So you gotcha. wouldn't, you wouldn't, as far as I know, you wouldn't do PNF every day, for instance, you would, you do PNF a few times a week. So my focus right now is, this is going to sound kind of funny because it's so simplistic, but just feeling good because there are times when I've been huge, right? I mean, I weigh 170 pounds right now. I've been 220 pounds and not fat. I mean, huge, but did I feel comfortable walking around? No, I couldn't turn my head. I was like a turtle, you know, I'd like yeah. <laughs> rotate at the feet. I mean, it was ridiculous. So being comfortable, I'm doing a lot of weighted hiking also. So I'd say mobility, meaning strength in the end ranges strength training, and then rucksacking, which I love doing when you have access to hiking trails, which you do in, in Oregon, certainly. And is that with that one backpack we talked about a long time ago? You use this weighted backpack that you take with you? It is, yeah. Go Ruck. So Go Ruck is the brand I use. There are many other brands. You can get vests. Personally, don't love the vests. If you're going to run with these things, which I'm never going to do, then I think the vests probably make more sense. But I prefer to use the weighted backpacks. And I have a 20 pound, a 35 pound, and a 45 pound. And then you can add different things to that depending. It is a lot harder than people might think. <laughs> and what you don't want to do is what I did in San Francisco the very first time I got a weighted vest. And I was like, well, at the time I was really big. I was like, I can squat X number of pounds for Y number of reps. No problem. I'm just going to put on a 60 pound weight vest. And then uh, I very, very stupidly just started walking with no plan. Right. I was just like, well, I'll just walk. And then when I start getting tired, I'll turn around. And I kept walking. And I got to the point where it hurt so much that I had to take it off. And I was like, well, how do I get this home? I was like two miles away. <laughs> so I had to leave the weight vest like on a sidewalk. And then yeah. <laughs> I was like, if anybody steals this, they deserve it. Like they can, if somebody's going to, if somebody's going to steal a 60 pound weight vest, like good for them. Because clearly they have more endurance than I do. And so then I had to walk back, sort of do the walk of shame back to my house without this vest and then get a car and go pick it up. But very big on, on the rucking. Very, very big. And honestly, these days also, and this might sound like a cop-out, but for a long time, my maxim was, as far as resistance training goes, train to failure, right? One, right. one set, train to failure. There are many, many, many ways to build strength. I'm not saying that is the one and only way. Some people get very dogmatic about these things. It's just for bang for the buck, like per minute of workout time, that's a great approach. However, as I have gotten a little bit older and I've been looking at things like time outside, time in nature, sun exposure, I'm not trying to optimize to get it under 20 minutes or under 30 minutes. I actually enjoy the process of doing it. So those are a few of the ways that I'm thinking. Let about me ask myself. you 
a couple questions there I'm curious about. So uh, granted, this information is a bit dated, but I was I was climbing a lot in my youth and, and, and did quite a bit of indoor and outdoor. Yep. And one of the thing, one of the people that I trained with uh, was like a, you know, semi pro climber that would tell me a couple things. One, every ounce of muscle he considered to be a potential negative in that it's some it's weight that can pull you off the wall because in his mind he's like it's dense weight and you want to be as lean as possible and then the second piece was that he was a big fan of low weight high rep so Mm -hmm. just you know i mean the guy could do a hundred pulps in a row it was just like insane right i'm i'm curious was it the pup? <laughs> yeah, it's Molly going crazy. She doesn't like the idea of 100 pull-ups, apparently. <laughs> I'm curious, though, what is your style? Like, if, if you're not going for mass and you're going for lean strength, it's not about gaining, you're not eating really high protein then? Or what are you, what are you doing there? Well, there are also many, 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 many different ways to train. And I don't think I have particular insight. When it comes to climbing, although I have asked around, I've taken lessons and have thought about it. So my short answer is I'm doing some high rep work, like the kettlebell swings are generally going to be higher repetition. And I'm using a 53 pound and then maybe a 72 pound kettlebell doing two and one handed swings. You get a lot out of that exercise. Then when I'm doing other types of exercises like inversion training, where I'm doing handstand work, where I'm really developing actually a lot of finger strength and uh, shoulder extension, kind of bringing your shoulders to your ears if your hands were extended over your head, for instance, as well as some of the training for bouldering specifically, it's super short duration. So you could Mm -hmm. view that almost as you would view powerlifting. I'm trying to avoid a burn, generally speaking, in those types of scenarios. And I'm looking to build kind of neurally based strength, mm-hmm. better recruitment of motor units and things like that. So I'm combining the two, but certainly I agree with your friend 100%. It's like the more weight you got to haul up that wall, the, more, the harder you're going to have to work. It's like cycling. Like yeah. cyclists do not want to have large upper bodies. <laughs> it's just right. drag. That's all it is. And for me right now, I am perfectly happy to be smaller and strong and working on things like climbing. There's no need for me to be large. And a lot of people don't want to be muscularly large, but it's hard to find anyone who wants to be weak. (laughs) I think everybody would like to be strong. And you can develop incredible relative strength and really develop yourself as a strength athlete while adding minimal body mass. Even as a male, you can do that. I got to say, man, the biggest change for me going into my forties, that has been absolutely fantastic. Well, let me me stop for a second. Jump back. You know, I've got a three-year-old and a two-year-old when Zelda started getting a decent size. And when you have a little toddler running at you at full speed and they want you to like catch them, and you like, you know, especially when it's not straight on, it's kind of out of angle and you're doing one of these one arm, like, like, like touchdown, like, like football catches with the one hand, like you're doing that with like a, you know, 25 pound little toddler or whatever. I literally like have thrown my back out like five times, like to where I am on the ground and cannot move. And I had to crawl to my bed and lay there for like a day and a half. That's terrible. And 
It, dude, it is like when you, I never knew that back pain, because you know, when you're a kid, you're jumping off walls, you're doing all kinds of crazy shit. Like you're, you know, I was jumping off my house yeah. under the trampoline. Yeah, and, like, sure. and then you get older and you realize like things just start breaking and back pain is a real thing. I mean, I know you've had some back issues in the past. Like it is no joke yeah. and I needed to fix it. So I started doing Pilates twice a week. And I stuck with it and it's been about six months now, maybe five months. And I haven't had a single issue. I have not had yeah. a single issue since developing that core. It is crazy. And I can, I can toss the little kids around as much or more than I could back then. It's just insane to me. Cause like, yeah. it's a, I was always like, you. well, I would always go to the gym and be like, okay, biceps, triceps, chest, back out. Right. <laughs> and like same, you know, or shoulders too, you know, yeah. and like the same workout every single time. And like, you look in the mirror and you're like, yeah, I look pretty good. But then, then it's like, you know, and your toddler takes you per- down. <laughs> yeah, toddler. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> do you do in person or do you do virtual over zoom? Oh man. I, yeah. I'll, so she's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Don't mention her name. Cause then she'll get the hug of death, but I, I want to referral after we finish because I have been, and th- this is where <laughs> a lot of our listeners are probably gonna be like, Oh my God, they've totally lost it. But Pilates, really technical Pilates is not easy. And that's right. I have never felt better than when I am doing a combination. If I look back, like when I have felt the strongest, the fastest, the most limber, it's when I was doing a combination of Olympic weightlifting, Pilates, and acro yoga. I felt so limber and simultaneously strong at all of these crazy end ranges. And the Pilates with a really technical trainer is incredibly, incredibly beneficial. And there's a lot of carryover in the same way that gymnastic strength training, a la Coach Summer, S-O-M-M-E-R, has a lot of carryover. So despite the connotations that people might have associated with that word Pilates, and there's a lot of ridiculous, ridiculous stuff also, done technically, it is really hard. I'll give you an example. I remember last summer I was doing Pilates over Zoom and a friend of mine was visiting who is a, a former international level competitor in kickboxing. I mean, he went to the world championships multiple times, was also a high-level athlete in a number of other sports. Like he's a fit guy, had decades of competition. And we got halfway through this Pilates class and he was, uh, I think, in sort of some type of kind of side plank bridge doing stuff with his obliques. And he just he just collapsed and he was like, Jesus Christ, this is embarrassing. This is what's happening. It was great. It is not easy. No. So I, uh, I'm definitely a proponent, strong proponent. Yeah, it really, uh, you appreciate all those little small muscles that you never really pay attention to. And it just like, yeah. The, and it, it is such a little, a good teacher will, will get in there and really help you work all those little tiny stabilizing muscles. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's just fantastic. Anyway, that if anyone out there is having back issues, highly recommend Yeah, check it out. And you know, I think it's easy for people who lift weight in some fashion to be heavily biased against body weight or calisthenic type exercises. And it's very easy for people who do body weight calisthenic type exercises, including something like rock climbing, to glance askance at 
people who are lifting weights. And I think they are very, very complimentary. But man, I have seen some gigantic bodybuilders and powerlifters do a yoga class and just end up on the floor because it is a different exercise. So yeah. I do think they, they complement each other very, very well. Just a quick thanks to one of our sponsors, and we'll be right back to the show. This episode is brought to you by UCAN, U-C-A-N. What you eat and how you live, exercise, sleep, stress, all play an important role in how your body handles glucose. It's main form of energy. You might think of blood sugar. That is glucose. When glucose levels are steady and you avoid spikes, you're improving your metabolic fitness. An important way to take control of your metabolic fitness is to eat and fuel with foods that help regulate blood sugar. To help enhance my own metabolic health, I was introduced to UCAN by Dr. Peter Atia, who said there is no carb in the world like it. UCAN's patented ingredient, super starch, has the remarkable ability to provide a steady release of energy without spiking blood sugar levels. I use UCAN's energy powders and low-calorie bars to maintain focus throughout long days, for exercise, better performance when training, and to avoid fatigue without making metabolic compromises. So when I need a Scooby snack, when I need a little pick-me-up, I reach for UCAN. UCAN has a variety of different products with Superstarch to help you balance your blood sugar, from energy powders and bars to granola and almond butter. There's a whole suite. Check out my favorites at ucan.co slash Tim. That's ucan.co slash Tim. And save 30% on your first order. That's ucan.co slash Tim. All right, I say with a sigh, blockchain, DeFi. Will Tim ever make his own NFT? (laughs) I would like your advice here because... I'm fascinated by NFTs. I have tracked them very closely, although I stopped following it quite as closely maybe a month or two ago. I do find the technology very interesting. Conceptually, I think there are many, 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 many applications of NFTs well outside of, say, artwork. Mm -hmm. And I've also made some investments in OpenSea, for instance which I think there was a question on Twitter also about picks and shovels and so on. I think that OpenSea, mm-hmm. not to narrowly put it into that category, but I, I do think that they're in a very good position to establish themselves as a dominant player, regardless of what types of standards might be developed, for instance. All of that said, great interest. So why the hell have I not done it? I have not done it in part because there has been this mad dash and money grab related to nfts and i don't want to be perceived nor do i maybe subconsciously even want to be driven by trying to capitalize on a hugely speculative bubble right where the goal is not to enjoy the artwork the goal is to resell the artwork for more and that's fine i mean it's fine that a market exists that's true in a lot of traditional art as well or i would say less digital nft type art so I would love to create an NFT just to learn more about the process, right? To mint my own NFT and to go through with all of it, maybe more than one NFT. I would be curious to know how you would think about that if you were in my shoes or in your own shoes for that matter, but in my shoes, because I'm giving you my confessional here. I mean, I think that with NFTs there, you're right, it is a mad dash by a lot of people a lot of celebrities entering the space and 
they are quick to attach their name to a project. Oftentimes they're not even the ones doing the artwork, which is also just kind of like crazy to me. <laughs> like, so you'll have yeah. a list celebrity come in say, I'm releasing an NFT and it's like, I did a partnership with this person and it's like this beautifully rendered 3d animated thing. And you're like, yeah, they actually never touched the computer. Did they? <laughs> it's yeah. like, you know, it's like they're just associating their name with it. Which also happens in more traditional art. If anyone hasn't seen the price of everything, I think it might be the price of anything, the price of everything though, I believe, or the price of anything. There's a documentary that goes into some of this, but yeah, it's, Oh, I have to watch oh, it. You'll That's, love it. it you'll awesome. love it. Yeah. So basically, yes, there is some of that also, but at the same time though, you have some really legitimate kind of emerging artists that are using NFTs as this new medium. And I have collector friends that are not treating it like, let's just grab and flip, but they're going to be holding on it to for many, many decades. So there's a combination of both that are happening. For someone in your position, you're right. There's the risk that you run is that you launch the Tim Tim NFT <laughs> and it's like, oh, great. Tim's making, you know, a half million dollars off selling this NFT or whatever it ends up going for. He just did it for the money grab, right? Yeah. So I think if anything, man, you don't need the money. Like just do it for charity. Yeah, I would donate it all. But let's take that as an example. Okay, so 500K. What the hell would I sell for 500K? Well, you're a good artist. With the understanding that a lot of things have sold for, I mean, there was, a, there was you know, Beeple sold one piece, uh, this collage for $69 million, right? So there's certainly, he's an incredible artist first, I should, right. I should say. Like the guy is a machine and also virtuoso in what he does. And also insanely funny. Yeah. Have you, yeah. you had people on your no, show yet or no? No, I haven't. Uh, the guy is just a riot. <laughs> He's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And good for him, you know, because he, well, people can look up his story, but I mean, created every day for what, 5,000 days straight, something like that. Was not clearly not doing it for the money yeah, when yeah. he got yeah, started. I, I could not be, yeah. I could not be happier that people like him are doing well in this environment. I have some graphic art ability. I could do something that was graphically inclined. You basically have a, a few different avenues to explore. One, I love the putting it underneath the charity, 100% proceeds go to charity. Fantastic. Boom. You check that box. No one's going to complain. The second thing is, what do you do? Do you take existing media that you have? So maybe it's a, a portion of one of your episodes. Maybe it's a, something that you said one time that has resonated with a lot of people that is you want to memorialize in, in an audio clip with a, 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 a cover art of your podcast or I, I, you can Tim do anything talk, you want talk, there. Episode one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I better get some royalties on that bitch. I interviewed you. So yeah, definitely split the royalties with whoever else is on the show. <laughs> no, but the other thing is like, you are an artist. Like I've seen some of your stuff. You can, you can do some amazing things or you could get super artsy. You can like mash a body part on a piece of paper and skin it in. And, like you could do something could, like that. You know, you have hardcore fans. Oh, I could get all Art Basel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. Tape a banana on a wall, smash a body part against it, sell it for a few mil. There you go. Oh man. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people don't know this probably, but I wanted to be a comic book penciler for probably 10 years. So I spent a lot of time looking at graphic art, was an illustrator for a period of time. So I suppose I could do that. Listen, I love Gary V. <laughs> I love him. He's a, he's a good friend of ours. You've seen his art out there. You know, he's put out some NFTs. Like, dude, I've seen your art too. I would say that you have the skills to put out your own NFTs. Like if Gary can do it, you can do it, brother. Like seriously. Yeah. And, I, and I'm grateful to people who are experimenting and pioneering and 
trying all these various things in the space because not everything is going to work. Certain things will work. And I feel like also it's really, really hard to perhaps look at it through this lens. But with NFTs, like, yes, there's, there are going to be some amazing things. There's also going to be a lot of noise. But it's kind of like tech companies in 99 or 2000. It's mm-hmm. like, yes, someone could say all of those companies were garbage. But you know, amidst all the noise, you had the Googles and the Amazons, <laughs> right? That's right. And yeah, I don't know if it was in 99, 2000 or shortly thereafter, but it was, it was in the same window. Mm-hmm. And those are like world changers, right? Those are history changers in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing is, it's just a new canvas type. I don't see it as like, there's a shit ton of like, how many craft fairs have you been to where you yeah. go down and it's like, oh, the Sunday craft fair. And you go and you're like, oh my God, there's like people are painting on canvas. You're like, I would never buy that. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's just, <laughs> that's happening in the world of NFTs, right? Yeah. Anyone with Photoshop and the export and save his ping file can create an NFT, yeah, you know? Yeah, so totally. anyone and everyone can participate. And I think that's a good thing. And there will be some amazing kind of cream that rises to the top. And that is, you know, we're already starting to see it. There's a handful of names out there that are NFT kind of native that are starting to gain a lot of momentum and serious collectors and followings. And X copy is a great example Mm -hmm. of an artist that puts out these just crazy, almost seizure inducing flashing (laughs) NFTs. No, they're insane, but has been doing it since day one. And now some of his one of ones are selling for over a million dollars in Christie's and they're, they're going on some of the major auction houses and there's a handful of those folks that are, that are doing some really unique things in this space. So it's not all crap, I guess is what I'm trying. I think art blocks too, is another one to, to check out on the generative side. They're kind of like, to answer your question about how do you sift through all the crap? I don't know if you had that question, but I will answer (laughs) it. It, I'll let you create my questions for me. Yeah, exactly. Essentially art blocks, they have this editorial kind of board of other artists that then kind of vote in who gets accepted and, and put on the platform. Mm. And so the curated side is, are the only the people that meet that bar. And I think we're going to see more of that. There's a lot of that in the curated marketplaces. Right. There's a lot of Exactly. What is the story with the artwork on your, your Twitter, your Twitter? Oh, my, my Twitter? (laughs) Whew. Man, that June shine's going to my head. Uh, Are you drinking right now? Are you really drinking? Or were you just, I thought you were just holding the can. I I just, I just scald one. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm good. That's amazing. Uh, What is this artwork (laughs) on your Twitter profile? Yeah, so what you're seeing right there Looks like a bunch of pills. Looks like a bunch of pills. Yeah, that's a, that's a squiggly. So this is crazy. Essentially, it's funny we were talking about art blocks. So that piece of art right there is the very first project to launch on art blocks. And it is this little squiggly and it looks very simple, like a little tiny snake, a multicolored snake. And essentially what art blocks is, is it's a generative art platform. Yeah. You should define what generative is for folks. Yeah. Let's, let's define that. So basically if you think about traditional art, it's always an artist, they sit down, they do something, they mint it, they paint it on canvas, whatever it may be, and the artwork is, you know, quote unquote, done. And then that is then sold. Generative art is essentially a artist that comes in and says, I'm going to write an algorithm that is a piece of math that will define the basic parameters of a piece of art. But I'm going to introduce some randomness to it and that randomness is going to be created by the end user. So when you click to mint a piece of generative art, you are 
then putting that time code, that kind of timestamp of randomness into the algorithm. And then the algorithm spits out your unique piece of art. So you have no idea what you're going to get until it actually arrives in your wallet. And so what you're seeing there, that little squiggly is something that I minted. I didn't know what it was going to be. And some of them have more rare attributes than others, different colors, different thicknesses, and people collect them because they love the kind of luck of the draw and what you're going to get. And they love the output because sometimes the output is even more interesting than what the original artist could have ever contemplated when writing that initial algorithm. I think it is a, a really interesting new form of art that can be captured and held by the blockchain because generative art has been around for a long time. You know, people have been doing computer generative art and they would always like, you could go to showrooms and they would have like, you know, computer screens or monitors up showing off this stuff. And it was always like a, a computer science-y kind of thing over the last 20 years. But there was never a way to capture that and save it. I mean, you could save it as a file, but then, you know, blockchain actually provided a way to say, okay, the output is now captured and saved in the blockchain. It is a unique asset that can then be transferred and traded. So it's actually essentially a new form of our new art form. We can give you title to this unique digital asset. Exactly. So this is kind of a new form that is only possible or enabled by the blockchain, which I think is is really fun, you know? And so that's why it's getting a lot of traction. I'll give you a sense of how quickly this market is growing. So Artblocks two months ago did around 2 million in secondary sales of all of their works of art. Last month, because we're just getting into July now, last month they did over 9 million in secondary sales. Wow. It's really taking off. So I think it's like, third. It's like NBA Top Shots, CryptoPunks, and then I think Artblocks is the third platform. Say that one more time. NBA Top Shots, like the yep. NBA collectibles. That's number one. It depends on the month because sometimes CryptoPunks or some other project will appear that is, you know, massive and blows up. Mm -hmm. But, you know, CryptoPunks is the OG original, not generative art, but it was the, the original kind of randomly created I guess you could consider it kind of generative in some way, but the random output was was captured with all these different yeah. attributes. Yeah, people can check it out at larvalabs.com. Larva Labs is amazing. I mean, they they do all sorts of fascinating stuff. Really cool stuff. And and do you know that Jay-Z set his Twitter bio to a CryptoPunk <laughs> uh, a couple weeks ago? Did not know that. Wow. Let me take, a, yeah, let me so take that, a look at that. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. Huh. Wow. Go Jay-Z. It's one way to add some value to the market you're participating in. <laughs> I feel that it's silly for people to say this is just all hype, you know, and th there is a lot of that out there. They're like, oh, this is just going to go away. It's funny if you look at like historically when these new mediums come out, like what happens and what people say. I, I actually did a bit of research on all this. And I don't know if you knew this, but back in the when Canvas was first introduced before that was largely like cathedral wall and like wooden, mostly on wooden planks that, oh, are you still there, Tim? I lost you. Well, that was fucking crazy. My house got hit by lightning <laughs> and the whole, the whole <laughs> show came to a grinding halt. Did your house actually get, was it your house that got it's hit unclear. by lightning? It's unclear. No? It's unclear, but there was a massive thunderstorm and lightning and thunder all around this remote house at an undisclosed location. And I'm in the middle of fucking nowhere for context. <laughs> and everything just went out. And I was like, oh yeah, this is why you have a generator. This is why I have generators in places like Austin, where I was the only house on my street with power during the snowpocalypse. It's just like, it's, it's incredible. We'll come back to Jay-Z and the 
CryptoPunks in a second, but it's just incredible how fragile the infrastructure around us actually is. It's Yeah. I mean, I have the same thing. I lost power for seven days in Portland during this last winter storm. We had an ice storm. Yeah. And it took everything. Yeah, it's out. wild. It's wild. And, you know, I do worry about or think a good amount about attacks on the power grid, cyber attacks on the power grid. And there's actually a book that I highly suggest people check out called Lights Out, subtitle A Cyber Attack, A Nation Unprepared, Surviving the Aftermath by Ted Koppel. And it will scare the shit out of yeah, you. Yeah, I was going to say, dude, I feel like <laughs> these, these types of things just make one more paranoid, you know? You've heard the expression, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. Which isn't <laughs> right. isn't intended to be a justification for like building spider holes in the back of your house and going really above and beyond the call of duty to ridiculous lengths to prep in any sense. But having some basic provisions and basic backup plans in case of disaster, I think is pretty smart. I mean, we most of us have fire extinguishers. We hope never to use them, but we recognize that having one for a hundred bucks or less, 20 bucks is worth the downside protection. Similarly, wearing seatbelts, like when's the last time you had a head-on collision? Not recently, probably, but we all wear seatbelts because it's relatively easy to do that and mitigate high levels of downside. I think generators fall in that category. I think backup water falls in that category. It's just a very present reminder for me of just how, if we, we saw it during, or personally, I saw it during Hurricane Sandy when I was working on a chapter related to disaster preparedness in The 4-Hour Chef. There's an extensive section on that, which seems to not match at all with anything related to cooking or chefs, but in fact, does relate. It was kind of too long-winded to explain, but... I was going back and forth with my editor at the time, and they were like, look, Tim, I'm into prepping. And even for me, this seems ridiculous. And then what happened? Hurricane Sandy hit, and everything was totaled. And people in New York were going without power. And I just think it's a good pop quiz from the universe in a lightweight way. When your power goes out in this way, it's like, all right, how much water do you have? How much ability do you have to charge your devices without access to the power grid? It's just super basic stuff, right? Because I was thinking, okay, we, yeah. were, we were going to record this because we were texting back and forth. But as soon as the power went out, what happened? All the cell towers were overwhelmed. So my bars went from like three to one immediately. And I was right. like, well, we, you suggested we could record via phone, like have the conversation and just record locally in QuickTime, which is what we we're going to do. But that also, you have to think out to like the tertiary effects of something like that and sure up until a certain point where you're just like this is overkill. Yeah, until, that, that's the problem i have is like where do you where do you draw the line well do you, you have know? backup water at home i mean i have like do you have like a week of water for your family no it's like a few hundred a bucks man you should definitely do that well here's the deal do i need a week of water like backup? well i'll give you an example so in austin texas there have been multiple boil warnings where there are high levels of rain some type of flooding, the municipal water treatment facilities become overwhelmed and they issue a boil warning. So you can drink the water as long as you boil it. But I have a HEPA, not HEPA, but I have the equivalent of that on the water side that does 99.99% of viruses and bacteria. Yeah. 
So I have like the crazy over the top, like water sanitation, like coming in to the house. So you can just like take your kid's diapers and recycle it into, into drinking water. It doesn't matter. Yeah, you just, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can just pee into the thing. It just works. So yeah, you know, it's, I just, I just view these things. I'm like, why not have a few hundred bucks of distilled water? Um, I get it. I have, I have basically, I would say probably about four or five days worth of water. Yeah, that's good. Just and for so, you. Your you family know, can like, fend for themselves. Well, <laughs> well, just, I can get in a car and drive to some place where there's water. No, think, that's like, the thing, though, is like in, in Austin, it was like within 24 hours, all water at every grocery store was gone. So it just right. raises interesting questions for me, right? Because then you're like, okay, well, if that happens, what are people going to do? They're going to think about driving outside of the limits of Austin. Okay, so then what? And then what? And then what? But I don't think right. I'm that crazy about it. I don't think that's crazy. No, I'm we, not we, like, water you know, normal walking around downtown in a ghillie suit or something. Do you have a, a gas mask? I do not have a gas mask. I had one in San Francisco and I don't have one. Do you have a gas mask? I do not. <laughs> do you have any type of full body virus protection suit? Like a hazmat suit? I yeah. do not. Do you? Oh, so you're not that bad. Yeah, I've got a couple of those. No, I don't. <laughs> kids wear them from nine to five. It's pretty standard in their yeah. household. No, I don't have those uh, in part because right now I'm in a very rural environment. I'm in the middle of nowhere. But you realize quickly also without the amenities of a city center, how dependent you are on things that are easy to take for granted, like power or telecommunications. And if a tree goes down and lands on the lines, like you're just out of luck until it gets fixed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm on the uh, wait list for one of those Tesla power. Walls. Yeah. Those are cool. So I think those are cool. They're all back ordered. Exactly. Right. So then, and then what? Then the point one percent of poop in your water is going to kill you. <laughs> Just kidding. Something has to get you, man. <laughs> I mean, drinking all, taking all these life extension drugs, and then the poopy water is going to get you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right. So Jay Z, you know, I looked it up while I was futzing around and messing around. And for those who haven't seen it, Mr. Carter at SC. It's actually surprisingly hard to find on Twitter. <laughs> Despite that, has 3 million followers and zero following. But Jay-Z does, in fact, have a CryptoPunk as his profile pick. Is that the right term to use? Yeah. That's, that's wild right. to me. When did that happen? A couple weeks back, two, three weeks ago. God, it's a big it's deal. A big it's deal. a big validation. It's a big validation. Yeah. Also, I'm sure if he owns one or 20 of those that uh, he just three X his investment probably, or does that not translate? Like what, what types of things affect the pricing dynamics for the crypto punks? And people can look at this if they go to larvalabs.com and then go to projects and click on crypto punks. You can look at the top sales. These things have been covered everywhere. And like you said, they're the, they're the OGs, the, uh, kind of first yeah. edition. They're like the Model Ts of NFTs. So you can look at largest sales. So right now, to give people an idea, and when you look at these, people are going to <laughs> just end up gaping, <laughs> jaws falling to the floor, looking at these things and wondering why on earth an alien with a pipe in his mouth would be worth $7.57 million. That's outdated. It's outdated. Oh yeah, there's been an alien sale now at Sotheby's for 13 million. Wow, that's crazy. I see. So off yeah. platform. I mean, these are 20 by 20 pixel little things too. These are not massive images. They're just so they just happen to be the first. Yeah, just imagine like playing 
Spy Hunter or one of these Load Runner, one of these really old games and the graphics associated with that. That's basically what you're looking at. Okay, yeah. so that's outdated. So I see. So the this is, and I know these these transactions have taken place off of the platform of that's right. Marvel Labs. I got it. So this is not an accurate reflection at all of the top sales. Right, because the top sales are now going off to Sotheby's and Christie's, and the, the traditional auction houses are stepping in and saying, actually, we consider NFTs to be real art. We're going to offer them to our collectors, which... Surprise, surprise. <laughs> as you can imagine, yeah, exactly. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> it turns out they also charge a 20% uh, commission. Yeah, very, very, very reasonable 20% commission. Suddenly they aren't, you know, but no, it's, it's cool. It's cool that they embrace this and they put their stamp of approval. They've also done that with a handful of other projects now, some other really top artists in the NFT space. So yeah, it, yeah. It, is, it is seems just to be new... really on top of it. I mean, they were kind of yeah. ahead of the curve with the NFTs for sure. I mean, they're really able to capture a lot of that market very quickly at the high end. So I have to give them credit for that. So it looks like now, maybe you can explain to people because I know you, I know you have the explanation, but we're looking at the largest sales at Larva Labs dot com slash cryptopunks and you've got two aliens so 7.57 million and 7.58 million respectively then you've got four gorillas then an alien then a something i can't even identify i don't even know why they're apes by the way (laughs) thank you all right we've got four apes an alien number eight just looks like like a pediatric cancer patient i don't know what this i have no idea what that is then a bunch of aliens not aliens. This is what I get for having too many hard kombuchas on my random show. For so I'm zombies, looking at the, you're looking at the top okay. top twelve. I'm looking at the top. Yeah. All right. So what is number eight? What is number eight? Yeah. Number eight. Number is, number six so four eight yeah. seven. So it just looks like a plain person, right? Yeah. And the reason why that one is so valuable is it is because it has zero attributes. So there was nothing <laughs> applied to it. So if you sort by attributes, there's only, I think, like seven or eight that actually have zero or uh, something like that. Got so, it. Got it. Okay. Yeah. It looks like just like a bald person. Yeah. It'll, it'll blow people's minds to look at this in some of the transactions that are going on. So have all of the highest price transactions left this platform and moved more to the auction houses and so on? Yeah, that's right. Anytime someone has one of these aliens now, they know it's going to fetch double digit millions of dollars. And so they want to obviously get as many collectors bidding as possible. And what better way to bring in the old money into the game than to go with the Christie's or Sotheby's and pull from that collector base. Yeah. So that's, that's been the approach. Wild. So wild. That's really it strikes me as significant. Maybe I'm overweighting it that Jay-Z has as his profile pick a CryptoPunk. Am I overstating that? It just, I mean, that that is really pretty on the nose, right? I mean, it's not subtle. <laughs> I think it, it also speaks to kind of what's going on behind the scenes. I mean, Jay-Z has a music company called Tidal. Yep which is a big streaming provider on the music side. And they recently sold that to Square, which Jack Dorsey is CEO and founder of, and also obviously CEO of Twitter. Square is now, I believe, the number two largest purchaser of Bitcoin because people use Square Cash app to buy Bitcoin. As you can imagine, there's been a lot of talk around how artists can potentially monetize songs using NFTs or other works of art using NFTs. And 
Jack's in the middle of all that. So it would not surprise me that the Square Cash app eventually turns into a way to showcase and kind of purchase and trade NFTs. There's been some rumors now that Twitter is going to jump into the NFT game in some way. Jack famously auctioned off his first tweet for millions of dollars and turned it into an NFT. That's cool. So, you know, Jay-Z is in the mix of all of this. So I'm sure he's kind of learning what's going on. And obviously you have to come back to the original project, which defined the NFT standard, Yeah, which is CryptoPunks. Yeah. So wild. What do you foresee as developments in the crypto or blockchain space? Or what are you watching closely? Well, I think it's, it's funny because people get so caught up in these kind of bull and bear markets and, and watching these coins and saying like, oh, it's crazy. It's down 20%. It's up 20%. And I try not to get caught up in the weeds there and just zoom out even further. Because I think once you do that, the lines start to smooth out a bit and you understand that we're in the very early kind of first innings of this entire rewriting of the financial stack. And so you know, that's part of the reason why I created the podcast to cover these things is because there's just so much going on right now. Yeah. We need to bring the average consumer up to speed so they know how to get into this stuff early before it's, uh, you know, on paypal.com, which is what Bitcoin and Ethereum are now, you know, at modern underscore phi. You mean, oh, that's my, my Twitter. Yeah. Just modern, modern finance, finance. modern dot finance, modern finance podcast. Check it out, folks on the web, on the tweets, on the Twitters. It's at modern underscore phi. All right. So you're tracking that. You're saying people get caught up in the micro cycles, right? That's right. And they think it's over. Fair weather speculators are going to get their faces ripped off and panic and then end up in a bad position. It's because they're always buying at the highs and selling at the lows. You know, I yeah. mean, that's a very common thing here. And and I mean, Tim, you know this, man. You bought in right when everything crashed or just before it crashed. I did. But and you got decimated for about four yeah, years. Yeah, I did. I did. Yes, I did. I came in in probably, what was it, mid-2017, something like that, and promptly got my face ripped off. <laughs> <laughs> right. But you were smart. You didn't do anything. You just, just sat like, there. There, and... there isn't a compelling, based on the thesis that I had, I mean, which is a fancy way of saying what I hoped would happen in the future, based on a couple of assumptions, there was no real reason to sell. Right. It was, uh, there were these really jagged, acute, short term moves. But if I actually had high conviction in the assumptions that led me to buy in the first place, it would be hypocritical and self-defeating to sell at that point. So I didn't sell. Yeah. Yeah. And that was great because that ended up, it's probably what up at least five X or more since, since all that happened. It's up a bit. It's up a bit. Yeah. I mean, it's not up as much as it was, I guess, end of April, beginning May, but that's okay. That's okay. I mean, I think there are just these sort of hype and deflation cycles that you see in everything. And my biggest regrets in all of investing are actually the times that I sold prematurely. It's mm-hmm. not having invested in things. In other words, it's not, it's not having missed opportunities to invest. It's having not held the things I invested in for a longer period of time. Yeah, Shopify. <clears throat> Shopify, Shopify was a my huge throat. one. I mean, that was my biggest <laughs> misfire of all time. Was, But at the time, that represented in absolute dollars a really significant win for me to try to get to yeah. the point where I didn't have to be preoccupied with money. So it made sense, right? Look, the, the logic of selling that actually made sense. Do I regret it? Yes. The, a better example would be in 2008. 
when I had one stock that I'd put a bunch of my, a very double digit percentage of my net worth into. Can you guess what it was? And I put it in maybe in 2005. Uh, WordPress? No, no. Although I am an advisor to WordPress, and I'm a, and a, or rather to Automatic, and I'm a big fan. But I'm trying to think of what you would have bought back then, maybe Amazon. Yeah, I bought Amazon in like 2005 or something like that. Maybe a little bit later. Taking a look right now, but so wait, you regret that? No, you don't regret that. I Obviously, regret been... selling it. I sold oh, you sold it, like it. three years later. I sold later. it when the subprime crisis landed and everything was just going through the floor. And mm-hmm. boy, oh boy, that was a mistake. Should have held on to it. And I didn't have clear rules for myself then. It was right. I, I had rules for buying, but not rules for holding or selling. And I think people, mm-hmm. at least I get my I've gotten myself into a lot of trouble by having rules for buying, which I sort of intuitively have a pretty good feeling for. I think you have an even better feeling for it, honestly. You're just, that's absolutely one of your mutant powers. But then uh, how long to hold, when to sell, having rules for that in advance is something that I have historically not been as good at. And that has been a big problem certainly with Amazon is sort of the, the textbook example of that, you know, selling 2008 on a panic and now it's who knows five or 10 X. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. Oops. Uh, but yes. All right. So coming back to blockchain or crypto, I mean, there's sort of like one, the, the latter is sort of contained within the former. What else are you paying close attention to? Of course you're observing the sort of mass behavior, right. And misbehavior. Right. What else are you watching? Yeah, I mean, we do a lot of crypto investing at True Ventures. We're a partner over yeah. there. Yeah, so we've probably deployed, I'd say, fifty million or so so far this year, yeah. in just in crypto-related deals. So that's a a pretty decent chunk of our fund. So it's something that we track very closely. And I would say the the problem for the average consumer is that there's just a lot of garbage in there. There's yeah. just a lot of crap. So. You know, I would say that unless you're educated and you are really deep in the space and you're listening to all the podcasts and you're, you know, reading all the different CoinDesk every morning, and if you're at that level, then you can probably go out there and say, if you feel like it, you can go out and say, I I believe I see where the momentum is taking things. And so that's kind of what I do as a profession. Now, I don't recommend that people do that with their everyday, just random pick of a doggy coin. Cause like all the, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of hype around these different meme coins that are appearing and those come down crashing as fast as they go up. So we have a problem similar to NFTs where anyone can spin up a new coin, which is a few modifications to some of the open source software that's out there, make a meme around it, pump it and then dump it and people get burned. So Kev Kev coin. Yeah, uh, the K. Tim Tim. Yeah, we Tim, do, Tim we tokens. Do, uh, Tim Tim tokens Tim, Tim and Kev Kelly. <laughs> I mean, we could like literally, I within an hour, we could launch a new Tim Tim token, and <laughs> and it would be live. And then we could put some liquidity on Uniswap. We could get it trading. We get people. I mean, that happens every single day. Yeah, it's really frustrating 
but it is what it is. It's an unregulated market. There's a lot of stuff going on. It's super exciting. There's a lot of innovation happening, a lot of really high quality projects, but a lot of, of crap to, you know, buyer beware. So you just have to be careful on, on, on how you evaluate these different opportunities and definitely do not buy into the memes that are out there. Like it's just that those are, those are silly. And I'm not saying that one of them isn't going to eventually, because there's this like fine line between community support and that turns into something real and a meme, right? Yep. And uh, something that's being used to kind of pump and dump. So would you, would you consider Dogecoin a meme coin? It started off as a meme coin. And I think that there are attributes Before the of big it that EM I really like. started tweeting about. The Doge. Yeah, exactly. Elon <laughs> Elon started pumping up the Doge. Well, he, here's the deal with Doge. Like, I knew the founder really well. I had him on my podcast seven years ago or whatever it was. And we talked about Dogecoin and it was a joke to initially. It was just like a fun, like he set the supply super high. Everybody was using it to tip using these little bots on Reddit. And you know, I had literally millions and millions and millions of Dogecoin because they were worthless. <laughs> And I was tipping out, you know, 10,000 at a time here, 5,000 over here. Like, it was just like, we all did it. It was just fun. Yeah. Right. And it was just kind of like a way, like a, a tip of the hat to someone like, it was oh, monopoly money. Yeah, exactly. Monopoly money. So that has now evolved into, it had a really strong community back then. It died down for a few years and then the community came back and then Elon jumped on top of it. But it's still lacking a few things like the underlying developers that are working on it. Now this could be changing. And I've, I've heard that they're seriously considering refactoring the code base, but it was just a dead project that had minor bug fixes applied to it. So there was no real outside of it being a quote unquote meme coin and being hilarious and watching it go up in price. The technology stack that it was written on wasn't being well it was being maintained just so that it didn't break. There was no innovation happening there. And so that is not the future of currency. The future like currency that is going to really be a real true utility has to have an active development community behind it, supporting it and evolving it over time. And so that is happening on a handful of other projects, not so much on Doge, but there is so much interest in Doge now, and it is being listed on a bunch of, of the major exchanges again. I could see it wouldn't be crazy. If you said, hey, Kevin, guess what? Five years from now, they now have 5,000 active developers doing all these really funky, weird things on Doge. I'd be like, well, that makes sense because it had it had the community drive a lot of that, you know? Mm -hmm. But outside of Doge, they call them like the doggy coins. There are a bunch of other doggy style coins that are just <laughs> like basically... <laughs> well, I'm sorry, Tim. Like, Continue. They're, just, they're, similar, they're similar doggy coins. I'm sorry that your mind went there. <laughs> Oh, dude, put that on me. They're doggy put that themed. on me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they're, they're doggy themed coins that are just like literally just out there for to get people excited. The prices go up, the whales sell, and you know, it's it, it ends in tears. Ends in tears. So yeah. all right. So Dogecoin, that's not a primary position in the True Ventures portfolio, I'm guessing. <laughs> no, it is not. <laughs> yeah. Okay. How do you well, actually, a number of questions. So since we invoked the name of the great Elon, you spent some time with Elon. I have really not. But there are those who attribute the recent correction slash crash to various tweets associated with Elon, including one related to the environmental costs of Bitcoin. 
Some think that is overstated. Some think that is just something it's understated. A lot of controversy around it. Then there are those who would say, you know, Elon is a small, perhaps contributing factor, but really it's just a overall macro run from risk assets. So even though people attribute the correction, or some people do, to that type of comms from Elon, it's not really accurate, and that it's, it's really a macro trend that happened to coincide at the same time. What are your thoughts? Do you have any thoughts on any of that? Well, Elon certainly carries a lot of weight, or I think people more recently, even though he's tweeted a few times about cryptocurrencies since all of this went down, and it didn't seem to really impact prices as much as it did back when he first started doing it. So I would say he probably has a little bit less way and people really got pissed off yeah. when, when he did this. I think that, you know, listen, we had a massive run up over the last, you know, six months. So to see a sell off or a correction like that just totally makes sense to me. Yeah. I don't know that I yeah. pin it all on Elon. I think that certainly his comments and pulling it out of, you know, Tesla from accepting Bitcoin. And it certainly sparked something that everyone was already thinking behind the scenes and that's true. You know, Bitcoin is a very dirty currency. I would say that I have read reports and I have talked to folks that are in the camp of, you know, they will point out that the mining operations have really led to a lot of renewable energy. So a lot of these Bitcoin mines around the world are placed in places where renewable energy is there and in place and operating because it is the cheapest form of energy. Now, granted, there are other places where it's running purely off of coal. So I don't know that I fully buy that. So I think that I'd have to set that aside. I don't think that the underpinnings of Bitcoin are going to be rewritten anytime soon. It is such a, you know, the fact that Satoshi disappeared, it's kind of like this. I know they have folks that are in charge, but it's, it's almost like don't touch it unless it's really broken. There's like just, you know, it's such a massive market cap. And it does one thing really well, which is just store a value. So while there is a lot of little additional add-ons that are helping it scale, no one is thinking about completely rewriting it from the ground up in the way that, say, they're doing on Ethereum. Like Ethereum is being rewritten right now to switch to proof of stake from proof of work. So out of the dirty CPU, GPU mining world into something that is insanely clean and more efficient and that upgrade will take place sometime in the next year or so. So there are other cryptocurrencies that certainly realize that this is an issue and they want to get away from the useless. Well, I mean, it's it's a very, you're also in some sense, when you do these proof of work operations that require a lot of CPU and GPU and are very power intensive, that is how the security of the network is maintained. So they are useful in that sense, but we have, I just think we have better, cleaner tech now that we can apply to the same problem. What are your hopes for Chia, if any? And could you describe what Chia is? Yeah, so Chia is a cryptocurrency that was created by Bram Cohen, who is the inventor of BitTorrent. We all you know, remember BitTorrent from when we were pirating movies or whatever it may be. It was sort of the kind of first peer-to-peer um, elegant way to swap large files. Bram went on to create Chia. Chia is definitely, you know, it's one of our investments at True, so full yeah, disclosure there. Me too. I'm an investor. Yeah, the reason why we backed Bram is because, I mean, there's a handful of engineers that you, if they raise their hand and they say, I'm going to do something new, yeah, he's, you just realize just that the an, caliber... is an animal. Yeah, it's just, yeah. Yeah, it just, it just one of the top tier engineers in the world. So you say, always say yes to something like that. So 
He's come up with a way to do proof of space and proof of time, a blockchain that uses hard drives for farming. So he calls it farming. And it essentially, part of the reason why I was attracted to it initially is because everyone has additional hard drive capacity and you can turn a normal computer into a farming rig that goes out and will actually plot and farm and do the same functions of a cryptocurrency, meaning providing space as a way to protect the network rather than just GPU and CPU. And it is just so much more green. It uses like one one thousandth of the amount of energy of, say, like using a Bitcoin CPU or GPU and potentially democratizes in a much more broader way. And so what I mean by that is that, you know, if you were to compete and you're to mine Bitcoin today, you would have to go out and buy a very custom kind of ASICs, custom uh, processor rig, or a really fast GPU if you're mining on Ethereum and spend thousands and thousands of dollars to go out and participate in the network. So you just can't use an off-the-shelf computer anymore the way you could when it first launched, you know, in its first year or so. So now with something like Chia, and you know Ethereum's moving this way as well with proof of stake, you don't really need the hardware requirements. So you can go out and just use some extra hard drive space, join a pool, and then you can be farming kind of instantly. So the number of active participants in the network goes up, which means it's more decentralized, which means it's better for overall security. So rather than just it being controlled by several thousand you know, the hope is with something like Chia, you get hundreds of thousands of people participating in and doing this farming. And so far, it's 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 been working quite well. I mean, they've got a lot of people. They had, you know, a warning went out. Several big publications wrote kind of warnings that hard drives were being sold out everywhere. So you couldn't go to like a, an electronics store like Best Buy was selling out of their top end hard drives because people were using them for, for mining on Chia. And so there was going to be this massive hard drive shortage. So what Western digital stock like went up because of it. And it was just, it, it's just crazy, but <laughs> that's wild. I, it's wild. It's wild. But it's, I would say, you know, just playing both sides of the coin, obviously I said I was a fan cause we're investors, but also, you know, it's early days for this. So I wouldn't go out and say, Hey, buy a bunch of Chia. If anything, I would say just fire up an extra hard drive that you have sitting around and play with it and see what you think. None of this is investment yeah. advice. Yeah, to be clear, we are not registered investment advisors or other professionals. It's for informational purposes only. Continue, please. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, with all this stuff, though, Tim, like, you know, like when I walked you through some of that MetaMask stuff one time, it's like the only way to learn this stuff and to get into it and understand what you're buying rather than just blindly buying is to play. Put $100 yeah. in, go lose $100 in something crazy that you didn't, didn't understand, but by the end of it, you you do. And so that's where you learn. And I think it's the most valuable piece of all this. So in an ocean of options, and again, this is you and the other partners at True have significant informational advantage and many other advantages compared to anyone, almost anyone listening to this. Uh, So this is not intended to be advice, but just so I have a better understanding, how do you vet, how do you choose blockchain slash crypto investments because there is so much out there there's this paradox of choice how do you choose things at this point are there any particular check boxes or criteria yeah 100 percent. so the way that i think about it is that first you have to say where have we been and where are we going and so when you start off the kind of where have we been when 
these chains first launched, they had one utility. They were like a store of value and a way to send digital currency to and from one wallet to another, right? That was Bitcoin for the first few years. And now when you think about where we're going, there are just a whole slew of different arenas that this blockchain technology has been applied to. So, you know, you have decentralized exchanges, you have, you know, the NFTs that we talked about and marketplaces around that, all of the web three kind of censorship resistant communication protocols, you have insanely high performance protocols are uh, blockchains like Solana and some of the others that are out there and that could do 50,000 transactions per second. And so what gets unlocked when you have that type of speed operating on a blockchain? Then you have existing big behemoth blockchains like Ethereum and like how are we going to scale Ethereum in the short term? So you talk about what they're called layer two scaling solutions. The entire financial stack is being rewritten from the ground up. So thinking about what is the future of checking and savings accounts? What does it mean to stream money to people in real time? And how does that work? And so, you know, there's a world where a startup pitched us not just recently where they figured out a way to stream money to people in real time. And so what that means is rather than going into work and like clocking in and, you know, waiting two weeks to get paid, you clock in and money hits your account every 25 to 30 seconds in real time as it's being earned. <laughs> and so there's just like this complete rethinking of the distribution of financial assets. So what once was, let me pull up like Wells Fargo right now, but if you pull up like a, a big bank and you say, Wells Fargo, Wikipedia, and you take a look at the head count that they have to employ to pull off a traditional, so they have 7,200 branches in 2021, 13,000 ATMs, and 268,000 employees yeah. for Wells Fargo. So think about what that payroll must look like. Yeah, it's well, a lot much, of mouths to how, feed. A lot of mouths to feed. And that, and that bloat that is in the financial system. And so what do you get in return? You have a checking and savings account. You get some FDIC insurance, which is nice. And you get absolutely nothing. You get no interest. I get that it's nice that, the, that they handle fraud on the check side. And you know, there's, there's a, a phone number to call and all of that. But all of that money that they're taking your money and lending it out on your behalf behind the scenes and their revenue for 2020 was 72.34 billion dollars for 2020 <laughs> so that money now in a decentralized fashion on the blockchain where now you have some of these people writing things like ave some of these lending platforms or you have like a blockfi that is partially centralized and partially decentralized you have these new banks and new financial institutions and these new protocols that are emerging that take just a handful of people to write code, manage and operate. And then all of that wealth creation is being distributed back to the individuals. So I'm excited for the future of finance because I think that, for example, you know, I've talked about BlockFi before. It is a company that is providing... You and I have talked quite a bit about it. Yes. And BlockFi, for example, Zach, I had the CEO on my show. We talk about what they're really good at is these interest accounts that give people real insane interest at right now. I think it's like 7.5% right now on stable coins, which is just nuts. Like, what are you going to get from a bank? If you keep 
$100 in your BlockFi account, and I don't mean this to be an ad for BlockFi. I'm not going to put any affiliate code anywhere in anything in Tim's show notes or anything. But it's like, it's it's essentially... <laughs> It's just a, they're giving you seven percent on your money on these on these stable coins, which are U.S. dollar coins, which don't change. You don't have to worry about them going up or going down because they're able to go out and pass that savings. They don't have that massive overhead that a traditional bank would have, and they just pass it right back to the end consumer. And so, a lot of these platforms, whether it be Compound or Aave or some of these platforms, you can go and bring your cryptocurrency in. You can lend it back to the platform, and you'll get paid interest back to your wallet, which is just Awesome. It's it's nice to see that finally going back to the consumers versus just being kept by the big banks. Yeah, it's super fascinating to me. And, and you introduced me to BlockFi and have since become an investor and don't place a lot of bets in this space. But the idea, and who knows net-net, like at, at the end of the day, what the pie chart is going to look like. But the idea of a blockchain first banking uh, or finance companies very interesting right it allows you to do certain things like offer this seven or seven point two five percent or whatever the the APY is on accounts that otherwise don't really exist because as you said there are all of these intermediate cost centers including headcount associated with traditional banking that are just simply removed when right. you shift to this type of technology, the ability to say borrow based on your cryptocurrency assets or anything that's related, these are new frontiers in a lot of respects. And you know, that's part of what makes it super exciting. Obviously, both of us are fans of BlockFi and many other things. What are the risks that you foresee on the horizon? And I know this is a common question, but I'm going to ask it because I think people will be interested in your answer. How much do you worry about sort of regulatory overstep or shutdown? As so we've seen what's happened in China, of course, China is not the United States, but how concerning for someone who invests a lot or for a firm that invests a lot in crypto and blockchain is the regulatory side of things? Honestly, I'm very much looking forward to regulation. I think it's going to be a great thing. The lack of clarity around how to treat certain types of assets in this world is what's holding it back, I, I believe. The big question to ask here is the one like you hinted at with China, where is it, does the US wake up one day and say, actually, cryptocurrency is illegal, shut it all down. And I just yeah. can't see that being the case here. It's too far entrenched in, into everything that we're doing. Every major bank, whether they like it or not, is now embracing blockchain in some capacity. It's a fantastic underlying technology. So it would just be odd to say we're banning a certain type of technology. Like I just can't see that happening in the United States. Yeah. I hope that there's more clarity because a lot of it is very confusing right now. And to be fair, a lot of it's being defined in real time. We don't know how to handle certain types of assets, there's just weird things coming out of this. Like I'll give you an example. There's a protocol called Alchemix that are these self-repaying loans. It sounds nuts, but in the world of DeFi, <laughs> what does that mean? it's crazy. So I could use some of those self-repaying loans. Well, basically what it does is it goes out and you come in and you take 
a certain amount of cryptocurrency. Let's just say it's $10,000, right? And they take that entire principle and they go invest it into yield generating protocols that are out there in this world of decentralized finance. And they instantly give you half of it back into straight, let's just call it a stable coin, like a US dollar stable coin. So you take 10,000, they give you 5,000 to go do whatever you want with. And because of the yield that they're able to generate on the entire principle, they take all of the interest payments and pay it back into the loan so that it pays itself off automatically. And you're at the current rates, it's a little over two years and the loan just automatically pays itself back. So you're receiving your interest payments up front, if that makes sense. But this is only something that would be possible in the world of DeFi where you're having smart contract work with smart contract and not in traditional lending. It right. just wouldn't make sense because you're taking all of the benefit and giving back to the customer. And in traditional lending, when you have mouths to feed, as I mentioned with the Wells Fargo example, they would never give you that full yield Well, they back, can't, right? They can't. Right, exactly. So this is like- They've what, only had, the they're, they're only making thing. a mere 72 billion. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and, and the odd thing though is like these repayments- are happening in near real time, paying down the loan in near real time. And so talk about like all these little microtransactions that are occurring over that two years and change. Now, how do you treat those repayments? Who's paying them and where are they coming from? And what's your cost basis? And you can imagine like, it just makes you go cross that. Like they, no one in the IRS is going to tell you how to do this. Like there's, this has never been defined before. How do you even file something like that with the IRS to explain to them what you're doing? I mean, even, so, even handling basic crypto stuff right now with filings is very challenging. Right. You can do it, but it's, it's very involved. So there's some very sophisticated financial, these new tools, these new types of code that is being deployed in these smart contracts. And we don't really have a clean way to even report them, you know, let, let alone understand how to, at what tax rate we should be charged. So I, I don't know. I, I'm excited for some of the more regulation to come into place. I think that just to yes, remove question, the uncertainty. So even if the rules exactly. are stringent and uh, punitive in some respect, at least the rules will be clarified and defined. Yeah. I mean, I've, I want to pay my taxes. I don't want to go to jail. I just don't know how quite to do it. <laughs> well, right. I wasn't implying otherwise, but <laughs> no, no, no. I'm just saying, I'm just saying in the world of DeFi, protest. <laughs> no, Too much. I'm saying in the world of DeFi, this is what people are running into is they yeah. don't know how to handle this stuff. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. it's a very exciting space, but it's a very kind of bleeding edge, enter at your own risk kind of world to answer your question of like, what am I scared of? What are the risks that are out there? I think there's a few. One is you, you mentioned the regulation side that that's certainly one that kind of is off there lingering in the background, which I'm not so much worried about what's going to happen on the U S but I'm worried about what if another country bans it? Hmm. Cause that causes some instability in the markets when other countries ban it, which would be the most impactful countries were they to ban crypto. Outside of China, are there any countries that stand out that one might not expect? So outside of the U.S., like who are the players who would really move the markets? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think China was the big one, to be honest. And now that that's kind of over, obviously the European Union would be huge. Anything in the, with the U.K. would be huge. But I just don't see those markets cracking down. 
So there's nothing out there that is like the big scary whale that we're just waiting for that to happen. Like I, I don't know of any other big countries. If anything, we're seeing countries now embracing cryptocurrency and making it an accepted form of tender. Like it's it's so that's happening, which is just fantastic. Hmm. Okay, so let's just put that regulation side apart aside. There's two other pieces that I always think about. One is the the meme coins, the, the, the shitty coins that rise to the top, and people think because it's a top 25 traded coin, they should buy it. That's a huge risk. The second thing is that people don't dollar cost average their way into the markets. So that means that they just buy a big chunk, to, oftentimes too much, and then they panic sell. Yeah. So you know, dollar cost averaging is a very simple concept. You have $1,000, let's just say $1,200 that you want to invest total in a cryptocurrency. And you're like, listen, my chunk, what I can afford for me is $1,200. You take $100 and you do one buy the first of every month for a year and you dollar cost average your way in. That way you're never buying at the high, never buying at the low. You're kind of getting that nice blend over 12 months. 12 months may seem like a long time. I, I personally would do something like that over like three to four months and just figure out what is that. Don't look at the markets in terms of like trying to time it. You just say every, this is the day second week of every month and every Monday or whatever it may be, whatever your day is. And then you go off and you make that buy. And the third piece is that people run into, and this is something that comes up a lot, is that people take on too much risk. So it has to be something where if it goes, it drops by 75%, you will not sell. So it can't be so meaningful that you're freaking out and you do a panic sale because this is where the risk is. But also, you know, with risk comes the reward, obviously. So when you're playing in these crazy waters, these shark infested waters, like there's going to be some really bloody days. And if that's the case, you have to just be able to sit there and take it and not panic sell because you know, and you believe in your heart of hearts that the future is digital currencies. And if that's the case, the market is going to be bigger five years from now, 10 years from now, and 20 years from now. And if that remains true back to that, like, what is my original thesis around this market? then you're going to be good in the long term, but you have to be able to sit there and close your eyes on those really horrific days. And they will come and they'll be multiple. Lots and lots and lots. For me, I've realized if I am not comfortable making an investment for at least three years, I just shouldn't do it because I probably haven't done sufficient homework to have strong conviction on my base assumptions that should underlie that type of decision. And if I'm not willing to hold for at least three years, like you're going to get punched in the face at least a few times over three years. And if I've committed to that and I've only allocated so much that I can afford to easily have sidelined right for that period of time and illiquid, you're going to end up panic selling. And just as I did with Amazon 2008, which was a huge mistake, right? I, I taken too much. I put it into an excellent company, but I didn't have rules for when I would sell or why I would sell, right? I only had my reasons for buying, but my reasons for buying were based on kind of present tense evaluation, not looking at long-term trends. So I didn't have myself set up for success with that investment which was a bummer. Mm-hmm. And I ended up selling and then buying back in in early April of, I guess, last year. Yeah, early April 2020. But uh, man, oh man, it would have been a lot better to actually hold on to it for the entire period of time. Here, here's the crazy thing, Tim. I'm curious to get how you think about it these days. But the one thing that is a little bit different than what you said there around stocks versus crypto is that the people that are the true believers will say there is, if you really believe 
that the future of currency is digital, then there is nothing to sell. Like, yeah. why would oh, you, totally. what would you, totally. what would you sell into? Because you're already holding the best form of that thing that you're holding currency. The, yeah. Right. The, you don't sell into the U S dollar. Why when they're just printing more U S dollars, be, that would just be silly. Totally. Totally. Uh, right. So I, I don't want to come out with like super strong opinions, but I'm generally not selling the primaries, right? Like the primaries being Bitcoin, Ethereum. Like I, I have not sold any Bitcoin or Ethereum in years and I don't have any plan to in the, in the near future. There are other things I'm not, I don't think we should name them, but more speculative things that might on paper offer a market cap that just does not make sense compared to the utility and ubiquity of other things, in which case, okay, maybe you take some of that off of the table, but because there's not a equally high degree of confidence in the durability over time of those things. Right. Yeah. Or you just can't find a compelling logic to be like, why is this worth X percent of the total market cap of Bitcoin <laughs> when yeah. then I consider that, but I hear you. I mean, they're definitely in the true believer camp. It's like, look, if you actually believe A, B and C, what you're saying, you should never sell. Never is a bit, never is a strong word though. I would say, right. Given current information, given what we know currently, given current information, I don't have any plans to sell BTC or Ethereum. Right. So in my mind, what I think is, okay, if I think about Amazon, of course, Amazon's going to continue to scale and be the, the leader in that space. If I believe the same in the digital cryptocurrency space, but I'm in a coin where I think to myself, gosh, I really see this emerging player that's coming up that I really believe in as well. Then I might do a lateral move where I say, okay, well, I have a lot of gains in this one particular cryptocurrency, but I also want to get a little exposure to this other one. I'm going to sell part of this and then move into another coin. And, and that just kind of diversifies my cryptocurrency basket a little bit more. Now, one other piece is we talked about kind of right-sizing the position that you're holding so that you don't freak out if there's a big dip. At some point, because I believe this market will expand and continue to grow over the next couple of decades, that position, let's just say you put in 10,000 know, over the next three months and that turns into a half a million dollars, at some point, you're going to look at that holding and be like, wow, this is now meaningful. I am going to freak if it drops by 75%. Yeah, totally. And so what do you do then? So my playbook is one, and I'm just speaking for myself, but what it is, is if cryptocurrency grows to the point where it is no longer whatever your number is, 10% of your overall holdings, 20%, whatever you're comfortable with, and all of a sudden it's 40% of your overall net worth, then my way of trimming is not to say, sell and grab some US dollars. What I do is I say, let's sell, but then diversify into a stocks and bonds and more traditional assets. So more of the wealth front style, kind of fully diversified. That to me is more the boring old school, hoping for 7% <laughs> a year, you know, type of style investing. But I'm definitely not one of these people. You talk to Pomp or something and he'll be like, oh, I'm hundred percent Bitcoin. They're like, what stocks do you hold? Oh, no, no, just, just Bitcoin. You're like, wait, what? Like, <laughs> like uh, that, that's a little aggressive, you know? So I, I'm definitely a fan of having, you know, other assets as well. So it's not just all about crypto. Yeah, totally. And I should say also, I mean, 7% sounds terrible, but like if, <laughs> if it's a decent number to begin with and you don't sell and rebuy and rack up all of these transaction fees and management fees and so on, you could do worse. 
Yeah. (laughs) Oh, totally. People, a lot of people go to zero trying to chase like 40% annual returns. Actually, I have a lot of sympathy for people who had the experience, their first experience investing in this last run up with crypto because they're just ruined forever (laughs) in a a way. I'm just like, oh my God, like this is, I don't want to say a non-recurring phenomenon, but it's just like if, if your baseline is set at hundreds of percentage per year, it will be very hard to convince you that it makes sense to invest in something with a reasonably predictable seven to 10% per year, let's just say. And that's a tough position psychologically for people to yeah. be in, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. The one hack I did want to share with the audience that I think is a really worthwhile one is, well, I don't want to, I also, I'll say it, like, I think that the mistake a lot of cryptocurrency holders are doing today is that they are holding their cryptocurrency where they're not earning anything for their cryptocurrency. So a lot of people will have a Robinhood account. I'm an investor of Robinhood, so I'm, I'm, I'm slamming them right now. And I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not an investor. We invested at Google Ventures and I hold some of their funds. So I don't mean to talk bad about Robinhood, but they don't give you any interest when you're holding your crypto there. The same thing goes for Coinbase. Coinbase just now said, if you have our stablecoin, USDC, we'll give you 4%. But Actually, they do Ethereum 2 staking, which is nice. But outside of that, they're not really giving you any interest if you hold Bitcoin there. There are some places that you can go, that you can transfer your cryptocurrency to, you know, PayPal doesn't give you any interest, that you can earn interest on your crypto paid in crypto. So you paid in in kind. So you're getting more crypto as you're sitting there holding it. So my strategy is that there's two sites that I like, BlockFi, which we already mentioned, they give you interest on Ethereum, Bitcoin, a whole slew of other coins. And then Gemini is another really world-class exchange that gives you interest on just holding your crypto there. So every time I launch my wallet, I see that I have more crypto because every month I'm earning interest on it. And I just would hate for people to be letting their crypto sit there and not earn any type of, of interest. Now, there are risks because they're they're lending your crypto out on your behalf. But that's why actually I... To plug my show again, I did an episode all around risk with the head of risk of both of those organizations to talk about how they're doing it behind the scenes. And after listening to that episode, I'm confident and comfortable in in what they're doing. So I've been using BlockFi for years now and getting outrageous interest rates. It's a great thing to do when you're sitting on some crypto. Why not earn more? Here, here. What else should we talk about? Kev, Kev? Yeah. So we covered crypto pretty well. (laughs) Thank you for the we. (laughs) I'll take it. It's a fun world, man. <laughs> You're doing fine, Tim. You, just keep you. holding your Bitcoin you in Ethereum. Thank you. I'm just breathing while I listen. Yes, thank you. I'm doing great. <laughs> Those are great. <laughs> you know, one thing I wanted to cover is a question came in from Twitter asking, and, and I guess then we can wrap it up unless you have more, but one of the ones that we have on last on our list here is, the most recent thing you've added to your daily architecture, any new rituals, question mark? Hmm. I was really curious when that came in, because we haven't talked about this in a while. Like, what have you picked up both in COVID and then kind of like a coming out of slowly coming out of COVID? Anything new for you? So the first thing that comes to mind is anything and all things related to sleep. This is a perennial topic, but you know, in the last, I would say month, I've had probably 10 days at least of the best sleep I've ever had. And A lot of that stemmed from a conversation I had with a neurobiologist from Stanford named Andrew Huberman, really interesting guy. 
and we talked quite a lot about sleep. He studies the visual system very intensely. Was he on your podcast? Yeah. Yeah, he was. Awesome. Yeah, he uh, was on Daria's podcast too. Yeah, recently, he's, he's a smart guy. He's a smart guy. And we spoke a lot about sleep. We spoke about testosterone and increasing testosterone. We talked about performance, the risks of increasing testosterone, different methods, et cetera. And in the sleep camp, we, or I should say he rather, told me about increasing fish oil, specifically EPA, to at least one gram per day. And I'd been taking fish oil, but I had not been taking that quantity. And I began taking fish oil and a number of other supplements, including magnesium beyond just magnesium 3 and 8, which is very good for sleep. And on top of that, paying more attention to circadian and cyclical cues that he and I talked about. So I've been trying to ensure as soon as I wake up that I go outside and spend at least five minutes in the sun. And I'll do that by jumping rope and walking around with Molly, my dog, but to really ensure that to the extent possible, I don't wake up and then brush my teeth and then check my phone and then check my calendar and sit inside dilly-dallying or even doing important work for an hour or two before getting outside exposure. I've really been trying to very consistently get sun, even if it's cloudy outside, just like solar slash sky exposure as soon as I get up. And I've been having some of the best sleep of my life. It's really, really, really remarkable. Uh, so I'd say- and What are you using to track your sleep? Right now- because I, I shifted locations recently. I mean, not full-time, but I'm just, I'm, I'm outside of, of my usual home base. So I have an aura ring that is charging. I haven't been wearing it. I do use eight sleep also on the bed, which is incredibly helpful for, yeah, we love ours. Yeah. Creating two zones. And you know, my girlfriend, if she could sleep inside a sauna at 90 plus degrees, she would probably do it. I really need to sleep at kind of a, surrounding temperature of like 67 degrees where I have an incredibly hard time getting to sleep. So the eight sleep does provide some tracking. And I found that that eight sleeps, I suppose, inference or extrapolation from what they can sense in the bed is pretty good. Even when they're paying attention to HRV, certainly the number of times that you're tossing and turning, getting up, etc. Surprisingly accurate from what I can tell. I was very skeptical. I do use the Aura Ring. That's going to be the primary for looking at sleep quality and HRV. So those would be the two tools predominantly. But, you know, at the end of the day, even though I find these tools very useful, you know by 1 p.m. if you had a good night's sleep or not. And you probably yeah. know as soon as you get up. And so it's, it's, yeah. it's a subjective feel as much as anything else. And I am a different person. If I get three or four nights of excellent sleep... I am a different human being, like qualitatively and probably quantitatively in a bunch of ways. I am just a different human being. Yeah. So, so those are, those are a few of the things that. A couple of questions. Changed. Yeah. So when you are, when you have a bad night's sleep and you look at your aura data, what does that mean for you? Does that mean lack of REM sleep, lack of deep sleep, or is there anything that jumps out? Yeah. For me, it's, it's lack of deep sleep. It's lack yeah, of, same. it's lack of restorative sleep. And I don't know how deeply 
pun intended, I should read into that, but my deep sleep is very easily compromised. It is very easily compromised. Also, if I have more than two alcoholic drinks, of course, not all alcoholic drinks are created equal. (laughs) So 6% is very different from (laughs) tequila shots, but I've paid a lot of attention to that. And that is another reason why I was actually more than happy to have a drink or two this early since we started recording at 3 p.m. my time. Because if I drink a little bit earlier, this is not, this is coming out really off terribly because I'm not suggesting (laughs) that people become day drinkers. But if I drink at, say, happy hour, like an early happy hour, which is not really my thing, but just for the sake of illustration, like like a 4 or 5 p.m., my body is able in a waking state to seemingly metabolize a lot of that before I go to bed. Right. And I consequently do not wake up with the rapid heartbeat and like oh, the, that's the worst the alcohol man. night sweats. It's the worst. And it, I hate that rapid heartbeat oh, where you wake terrible. up and you just got that like you could just feel it going oh, and you're like, oh, what do I do? You can't, I'm hot. You can't do anything. Water. Yeah, it's you can't worst. you can't do anything. You just have a terrible night's sleep. So having even an additional three hours to metabolize before going to bed makes a huge difference for me. So I've been paying attention to that as well. But almost all of my changes recently have been associated with improving sleep quality. Can I ask you what type of, what manufacturer of omega-3s do you take? Yeah, I can tell you. Let me grab it. All right, Tim has left the room. We'll see if this makes the edit or not. I'm betting it's Carlson. Wild caught omega threes. Okay, here we are. <laughs> you having another one? <laughs> oh, these, these are delicious. <laughs> Don't judge me, Kevin. This is not my usual, but in any case, the first I have two here. This is a Nordic Naturals Pro Omega six fifty EPA four fifty DHA, and that is right here. This mm-hmm. guy which I've been using. And then uh, the second that I have is Thorn. That's T-H-O-R-N-E, Super EPA. And that's this guy right here. Those are what I ended up choosing. And the effect is really remarkable. And it's difficult. I would say it's impossible. Let me be clear. It's impossible for me to say that my sleep quality improvements are entirely caused by this. I'm also spending more time outside. I'm doing rucksacking. I'm getting more exercise. I'm getting a lot more sun exposure. I'm in nature. My body tends to just downregulate. It's not the right word, but my nervous system downshifts a lot when I'm surrounded by nature. So there are many factors. There are many environmental changes in my life that have taken place in the last few weeks. But I have spent a lot of time in nature at many other points and my sleep has not had this dramatic change. So it leads me to think that there are other causal factors and this is the most obvious. This is the most obvious thing. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I've been taking a couple grams of omega-3s for for a while now and I just find for me, I actually see the benefits on the joint side. Like yeah, I just have totally. less like kind of joint joint issues. Yeah, I've noticed I've noticed that actually in my feet. It's like the old man episode. It's the old man episode. But my family has a history of gout. So my family has gout on at least the maternal side. And a sort of precursor indicator of that is often high uric acid levels. 
And I've been pretty loath to start another medication, which will be a maintenance medication forever. In this case, would be allopurinol. Yeah, dude, I've been taking allopurinol for five years now. Yeah, even though it's very, very well tolerated, right? As far as drugs go, it's very well yeah. tolerated. But I'm like, oh God, I'm going to end up that old guy with the pill case with a hundred pills that I have to Too take late, every day. <laughs> I don't take that many things right now. I've really tried to minimize it, although compared to the normal people, I probably seem like a complete disaster. In any case, the EPA, or perhaps it's, it's both, including the DHA, the, the higher levels of fish oil consumption, unexpectedly, I was stretching and I noticed, oh, wow, I don't have that usual stiffness, which I thought might be some type of degeneration in the joint, although I had x-rays and it didn't appear to be the case. The stiffness and pain that I feel in that big toe joint, which is very often where gout first presents, yes. which I was very concerned about. I was like, oh, fuck, do I have gout? Really? Am I like some fat aristocrat from like the 1700s in France? Like, what is this? Like, really? How can I have gout? Some people think that that's primarily caused by, I think it's purines in DNA, and that's associated with protein, and therefore people take by extension that to mean that animal protein should be decreased. It's not quite as simple as that. There's actually a chapter that I published on my blog, Tim.blog, people can find it, on gout and the understated culprit, which is fructose, as found in high fructose corn syrup and in fruit to a lesser degree. So it's not quite as simple as, as people might paint it to be. Nonetheless, what I noticed is like, holy shit, like that pain in my toes is like 90% gone after a week mm. of doing it. And I, I cannot think, because this has been consistent for years now that I've had this, oh, this pain. I mean, it's been, a, it's been a static level of pain. And after a week or two, Again, maybe it's placebo, who knows, but I wasn't anticipating this as an effect, so it's hard for me to think that it's expectation. It's like, you know what? It's hard for me to come up with many reasons not to do this, so I'm going to give it a go. If you take too much, more is not better. I think you could probably cause intestinal bleeding or all sorts of problems if you were just to chew these like gummy bears or something, so... You know, word to the wise, talk to your doctor about things like this. But I've I've certainly found it beneficial. What about you? Your daily architecture. Yeah, I mean that's a very I would say very kind of uh high highfalutin of- way to put it. But yeah, your da- your daily architecture, Kevin. Tell me. Yeah, the only <laughs> thing I would say that I've I've really stuck with that well, a lot of people want to know about our sauna routines and if we're still doing sauna, that was a hot topic in the in the <laughs> hot topic the, doggy style on, on the Twitter. I, I gotta tell you, man. <laughs> The sauna, sauna for me has been it's just the best. It was it's the best money I've, I've ever spent outside of having a, a nanny from time to time. Uh, it's it's like sauna, sauna is just so key. I just feel so yeah. much better. I mean, there's uh, all the health benefits and the studies. They just get they, there's more and more coming out all the time. Um, I will say one thing, one uh, pro tip: do not oil your sauna. So I oiled my sauna. What does that uh, even with, mean? You like so speak. they have this sauna oil on Amazon, and <laughs> okay. it, like when the wood dries out, you're supposed to put oil on it. You know? Okay, and so I buy the sauna oil on Amazon. <laughs> I oil it, and then it literally off gases like smoke, like oh, smoky that's terrible. Oil. And no, listen to this, dude. It's like it's a been skillet doing, on the oven on the stovetop. Yes, that's yes, terrible. Yes. Ugh. And so I was like, okay, this is crazy. So I went in. 
I sanded it down, like tried to get it all out, you know, scrubbed it with like soap and shit. And then, <laughs> dude, it's still off gassing. So then I started wearing my N95 mask in there. And so this is why you need Daria's a gas like, mask to use your own sauna. Yeah, Daria's like, what are you doing? She's like, I'm not going in that sauna again. And I'm like, listen, I'm like, it'll let me burn it out. because it'll, But I still need to get my sauna on. So I, I use my gas mask. And then, dude, I go in there and my eyes, when I walk out after, after 20 minutes, my eyes are bloodshot because the, like the smoke is hitting my eyes and my eyes were burning. It's not the gummies. No, it was not the gummies. <laughs> it's not your gummies that you hand make my and send me. gummies. <laughs> <laughs> the, it, honestly, it's it just like, so I, I ripped out my entire sauna, had all the wood removed oh, and had to buy a new mess. sauna. Yeah. Wow. So that sucks. Anyway, so routine, routine wise, <laughs> architecture wise, it's been one year, almost coming up on one year of meditation. And that my friend is the biggest game changer I've ever had is when I decided to take it seriously and not just do it like an app, just, but like really sit and, and, and do it really like real practice. So what, what does real mean? This is an hour a day. What are we talking? You know, what's funny, Tim. And it's, I never Zen, told you this Zen style. This is, this it, is with it, your it, teacher. Yeah, it's 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 or in uh, accordance with his style, instructions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. So what's funny, Tim, is one time I don't you know if you ever remember. We were talking about meditation. This was probably seven, six, seven years ago, and you said something to the effect of like, "I think that most people will they just close their eyes and think about things when they're meditating," or like you didn't like it's almost like you didn't believe it. Oh, I still think that's true. <laughs> I mean, I think there are benefits to meditating, but I think most people are just thinking about bullshit with their eyes closed. Right, <laughs> yeah. <right>. yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask you, have you ever found yourself in deep on, have you ever meditated to where you've been like, I mean, cause you did the, you did the offset site. You did the, you're really famous. You talk about that. Yeah. The Vipassana. Yeah. Vipassana. Psychotic breakdown. Yes. I yeah, had that. Breakdown. Yeah. That was, that was pretty deep. Having the full psychotic break, I would say it's pretty deep. I, I have felt, yes, I've had very, very deep experiences. Some of the best experiences I had were actually blanking on the style and the name currently. Naval would have some hints. Naval would have the answer. I'll tell you the general approach. And the general approach is having nothing to do. You actually sit there. You do not repeat a mantra. You do not pay attention to the breath. You just sit there and this is going to sound paradoxical, but you actively try to do nothing. You just sit there. Mm-hmm. And doing this in a group environment for a period of time, did it with a small group. This was one hour in the morning, one hour, let's just call it 5 p.m., like 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. And doing it in a group, I do think there's a dynamic that has gained certainly a different dynamic that presents itself in a group. I don't have any explanation for this. There are theories, certainly pet theories, but doing it in a group two hours a day for a period of even a week produced some very, 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 very deep states. Mm. Uh, and I would say in terms of kind of ROI in a short period of time, I found that very interesting. When I came back to so-called normal life, I did not sustain that twice daily cadence for very long. And I think in part because I was doing it by myself, or with my girlfriend and not in a group, having that accountability was very, very helpful. Hmm. Uh, but I have experienced some very deep states in meditation. 
have you found those to be pleasant states or just kind of like when you walked away, did you have a smile on your face? Did you feel like oh, you very felt- pleasant, very, very peaceful? Okay. Yeah, very, ple- cool. very pleasant and very at peace for sure. Oftentimes, uh, what I've noticed, this can be for me at least facilitated by doing a very intense but short sauna session for say 15 to 20 minutes mm. and then sitting outside and sort of air cooling and meditating for 20 minutes. Yeah, that's nice. That's just a great feeling. Oh, it's incredible. Found that to be very consistent. So to answer someone's question that you brought up, I still do sauna very, very regularly and view it as a key and simple lever that I'm able to pull for mental health. Whether it helps me physically or not, I don't know. I mean, maybe, sure. Heat shock proteins, all of that. Yeah, okay, maybe. I'm not going to know if it did anything until I'm dead. So... Uh, jury's out, but from just a day-to-day psycho-emotional and mental perspective, doing a sauna, especially late afternoon, if I do it too close to bedtime, it interferes with my sleep, but if I do it you know, four or five o'clock, then it seems to help and also dramatically increase HRV the next day. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I've noticed that, as have a couple of other people. So... But coming back to architecture and your meditation, so one year anniversary, congratulations. That is the anniversary of what? Maybe you can describe for us. Yeah, so I mean, I'd been like most people that have ever played around with meditation apps, you know, I'd been dabbling and even, you know, helped build one that is a free meditation app, but it just was dabbling. I was always dabbling. I was doing the 10, 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes, you know, just those little sessions guided and they were fantastic. Very very great prescriptive meditation. Oh, you have something wrong. You're feeling stressed, you know, fear of flying, whatever it is. Like there, there's all these courses for that. You can take them. There's not a lack of apps that offer this type of content. I think that the shift and the change was telling myself that this is a long road to practice, to really train the brain. Like if you think about Tim, you know, this better than way better than I do. If you want to be really good at something, it can't just be an afterthought, casual, I'm going to make time for this. When I feel like it. <laughs> when I feel like it, exactly. So I made that shift in my brain and said, okay, I believe there is something worth pursuing here that a dedicated, longer practice, longer duration, and a more serious discipline. So for me, that was a form of Zen called Sanbo Zen. Sanbo. Yeah, Sanbo is like the... The uh, offshoot. It's more kind of a lay. How do you spell it? S A N B O. Sambo Zen. Interesting. Yeah. So check it out. When I heard about this and was introduced to my teacher, Henry, got excited about it and really decided to dive in and say, okay, I'm going to read a few of the books that are out there on this type of Zen and then create a real practice that is 55 minutes of sitting a day. And I would say, how how much is it? 55 minutes. Why 55 minutes? Well, you do I like five, 25, but <laughs> yeah, you do 25 minutes of your first sit and then you do a five minute walking meditation and then another 25 minutes. Sit. Oh, okay, cool. And yeah. for those wondering, so as so I just looked it up, Sambo Kyodang, Sambo Kyodang is a lay Zen sect derived from both the Soto and the Rinzai traditions. Sambo literally means three treasures. I wonder what the treasures are. Sang is like ichni sang, sang three 
some bow, bows like bow chung, like my my darling, my treasure kind of thing. But yeah, some bow is three treasures, and then kyo, we can get into the Japanese another time. But yeah, kyo dan, religious organization or teaching organization. That's cool. So 55 minutes. What are, do you know what the three treasures are by any chance? Yeah, the one treasure is the Sangha, so the, the group. Uh, um, yeah, yeah. The other one is the Dharma, the teachings. And the third one is Escape Me right now. You could just type in three treasures. It'll three treasures apply more to than just Sambo. Okay. Yeah, here we go. Okay, wait a minute. Three jewels are the Buddha, oh, sorry, the fully yeah. yeah, three jewels, three treasures. So you can translate it either way, at least in Japanese. The Buddha, the fully enlightened one, the Dharma, the teachings expounded by the Buddha, hence the term or phrase Dharma talks, if you've ever heard that. And the Sangha, the monastic order of Buddhism that practice dharmas. But that's also colloquially thought of as the group that practices together. Roger that. Okay. So you've done 55 minutes a day for a year. I will say that I have certainly missed a few days, but nothing, nothing crazy. Not like where I'm like, Oh, I missed that entire week. Like there'll be a day or two where it just didn't work out. Mm -hmm. And, And there's been also a handful of days that are on the 25 minute side. Like there was definitely versus doing the 55. But yeah, for the most part, I've, I've been really consistent. What is the practice? What is the session? I know you mentioned it in brief already, but what does a session look like and feel like to you? Well, it depends on where you are in your practice. When you're first being instructed, the teaching is essentially kind of counting or just following the breath. So very almost like Vipassana style, yeah. just to get that base level of concentration honed. So, you know, it, it's a very, like, there's a teaching where they talk about the Zen master that was sitting and, and the concentration, it was so intense that they're, they're sweating. Like you can see sweat on their brow because they, it is like a very active thing that is happening with the honed concentration. Yeah. They hit you with a switch. If you're not, if you're they not still do that. if you, if you would like to request <laughs> it, you can go in the, in the Zendo and you can request that that happen. It's not for pain. It's for, for a jolt. You know, and like, I mean, it's not like a, a beating practice. You this know? is for you, not for me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so the initially, it's just that initial kind of counting and awareness. And then eventually, if your teacher and you feel you're ready for it, you know, you take on a koan, which is one of these things to sit with, like a Zen kind of saying or word to sit with that is used as kind of a, what's the best way to put it? Kind of like just a... It's like a paradoxical... Q, right? Or it's right. Uh, something like that. Yeah. Paradoxical anecdote or riddle used in Zen Buddhism to demonstrate the inadequacy of logical reasoning and to provoke enlightenment. That is the definition that comes up for me. Cool. Yes. So what you do is when you sit with that con, eventually you will be able to answer it. And there are hundreds of them. And there are checking questions that are done with your instructor. Checking so, questions. That's right. So okay. if you sit down with a Zen master and they ask you, probably the most famous one is uh, the sound of one hand clapping. Yeah, right. You would then be able to answer that question through a series of checks. And eventually you can go through and kind of answer all of them. So there's a right and a wrong answer to something yes. like that? Oh, wow. More or less. Yeah. Oh, God damn, that's stressful. 
but I mean, they get it, <laughs> you, you get it wrong a lot. So essentially like if you're going to do one of these, they, they call them like a session where you go and do these like multi-day retreats, you will go and you will sit and then you have a, a one-on-one session with your, your Zen master at that in the evening when you're kind of wrapping up, you know, and they'll sit you down and say, what is the answer to this question? Whatever you're sitting with. So some people sit with most common one is one called Moo. And, it, and they'll say, you know, what is Moo? And if you, and then you can either say, I don't know, and you can walk out and that's fine. They ring the bell and the next person goes in <laughs> or you can try and answer it. Wait, and so what is Moo? I mean, not that I'm not asking you to give the cheat sheet for, for people, but I don't know the answer to that question. But broadly speaking, is Moo character? Is it? Yeah. So it's a, there's a oh, Japanese character for it. It means it's like emptiness mu, or not. Like mushin. Mushin is like no mind or no, no, not exactly. Yeah, 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 Empty. yeah, yeah, yeah. Mushin. So mushin. basically, there, the, 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 where that came from is there was a very famous Zen teacher, Zen master named Joshu, and Joshu was asked by a monk one day. The monk came up to him and said, "In all earnestness, monk asked Joshu, does a dog have Buddha nature?" And, and Joshu's answer was just moo. And that, and, and that was coming from, they will tell you that answer was coming from a non-dual world. So it was like, it gets a little tricky. Yeah, exactly. So do you want me to give you, you a, do, a, I can give you a breather if you like, I've got some, yeah. I've got some stuff, but yes, continue. Yeah. So you just basically sit with, um, what are you talking about? What are you talking about breather? I'm just saying, if you want a moment to gather yourself, because this is some pretty esoteric shit, I can read what I found on the Sasho, the checking questions. But I can you can read the answers. <laughs> no, no, read, read what you found. Read the answers, like the uh, just like, ruin my like, entire practice, like, like the mantras for uh, transcendental meditation, where they're just listed out by age. Yeah, I could do That's that right. and just like to really make everyone cry. And I say that as someone who paid for the training and still uses TM. I paid for it. I still use it. So teachers may probe students about their koan practice using sasho, checking questions to validate their satori understanding. Although I would debate the translation of satori there, or kinsho, which is a really cool. Yeah. word like seeing the nature seeing the phenomenon for the mukon and the clapping hand con there are 20 to 100 checking questions depending on the teaching lineage the checking questions serve to deepen the insight of the student but also to test his or her understanding that's wild that there would be questions i'm just trying to imagine i'm not asking you to spill the beans on the secret cult that you've joined but the questions that would be related to something like what is the hand of one hand clapping, right? It's just, yeah, but think, it the, seems so like the, it's unanswerable by definition yeah, because it's right. intended to show the, sh- the that's right. inadequacy of logic. That's right. And so the best way it's been described to me, and this wasn't by my Zen teacher, but I've, I've heard it described elsewhere, is like the answers are going to be something that you will only understand if you've had that Kensho awakening type moment, or you would mm-hmm. only be able to provide. Mm-hmm. So your answers in the same way that when the monk asked, you know, does a dog have Buddha nature? And Joshi's response was moo. Like that would make no sense, make no sense at all. <laughs> so your answers are also going to make no sense in this plane, if that makes sense. But your teacher will understand them because they will be listening from another plane. Does that make sense? <laughs> <laughs> kind of, sort of. I mean, it's, it's, oh, here, let me give it an analogy. It's going to be terrible. You're going to love it. Uh, so it's like, if you're trying to explain 
like ejaculation to someone who's never ejaculated and you're like, it's kind of like a sneeze in your balls. And they're like, what? And like, there's never going to understand it. But if they've yeah, had this the, is a bad one, Tim. if they've had the experience <laughs> of ejaculating and then like, there's kind of no explanation needed and you can give like a moo type answer. And they're like, Oh yeah, yeah I hear you. <laughs> moo. It's so moo. That stuff is so moo. There you go. I don't know that that's how I describe it, but that you're, I like it. I mean, you're welcome. <laughs> Yeah, that's just three. You're, all, you're practically a Zen. This is th- three hard kombuchas later. I think I'm enlightened. I think <laughs> it's great. No, but I, that's the gist of it. Is like the, we would never, even if we read the answers, it can't they be would, a reading based, right. logic based exactly. answer. It has to be exactly. something that you have a felt experience of, right? Through this thing that is given the label of, and that's Ken, why there's so many checking questions. Yeah, can sure because they'll they'll be checking from a bunch of different angles whether or not you've actually felt or had the experience. That's cool. Versus it just being like just like a, a red response. Yeah, that's super interesting. I think the, you know, honestly, I mean, the, even though in some respects are very different, there are similarities. I mean, in the psychedelic ecosystem in the realm of whether it's psychotherapy assisted by different psychedelic compounds or otherwise, you know, there could be a place for these type of checking questions. And actually, in some of the indigenous traditions, there are, I don't want to call them fact-checking questions, but there are sort of standards and experiences that are thought to be representative of different levels of awareness within the context of say an ayahuasca experience Hmm. so they're not that dissimilar they're actually very similar and i should correct something i said earlier because i was thinking of a different character kinshul the shul is different than the there are a lot of homonyms in japanese a lot of things that have the same pronunciation so the shul in kinshul is a different character than i had envisioned its nature or essence is the shul. Ken is to see, uh, like kengaku. If you wanted to go to, say, a judo school and observe but not participate, you'd ask if you could do kengaku. Kengaku is gaku is to study. So it'd be like visual studying. That's super cool, man. I'm so glad that you're digging deep into all this. That's really, it's great to see you stick with something for a year. <laughs> yeah, seriously. It's going to be a long journey, man, but you know, Now's the age to get started. Yeah. Why do you think you've stuck with this? So there's a, uh, God, what is the expression? Since we're on, oh, well, we, I say, just like we explained cryptocurrency and blockchain stuff earlier, which was basically you talking. I'm kind of on this, you know, speaking in tongues, Japanese kick right now, but there's this expression. I think it's hiyasi samayasi. I think that's what it is. Somebody who's a native speaker of Japanese could correct me, but there's a, there's an expression in Japanese, which is like, he or she gets hot quickly and gets cold quickly, meaning they pick up habits and routines and various things, and then they stick with them for very short periods of time. Like they get really excited about something and then they just drop it, right? Which I think you and I both do, although I think you take it to a whole new level. So why do you think you've stuck with this for a year in the way that you have? What, what, what has changed in you or what is it about this particular thing that has has grabbed you? Well, I would say that I told myself that I knew that the upfront work of just being able to sit for an hour and be comfortable with it was going to take some time. And to be able to still the mind to the point where you can just get comfortable and it not feel like just this crazy effort that you're like, why the hell am I doing this? is a lot of work. But I said, I'm going to push through until I can at least get to the point where when I get up off the cushion, I feel 
better than when I sat down and I don't feel like it was a, just a waste of my time. Like oftentimes it was a challenge initially to say, can I calm my mind to the point where I will actually consider this a net positive. Hmm. And I say it took about three months. It took about three months to get to the point where when I would get up after 55 minutes, I would say to myself, this is great. I feel really good. How did you stick with it for that long? Three months is not, I mean, it's not the, you know, we're not talking about like a hundred years of solitude, but it's a non-trivial period of time for someone who operates at really high RPM. So like why even have that as a goal? Honestly, Tim, the, if I'm being really truthful, it was because I was really depressed. Mm. We had a lot of stuff going on, both in the country and with the pandemic and having a second child and just having all of this stress hit all at the same time. Mm. I just felt like I just needed something. I just yeah. needed something to be able to sink into that wasn't the news, that wasn't yeah. what was going on around us. And it was right during the pandemic that I decided to, that's why I decided to do this was because I just couldn't, you know, you're sitting at home and you, you're not really going out and doing anything. And it's just like, I can either drink you know, <laughs> or, or insert any other bad thing to do here, or I can pick up something. Hey, no. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I hear you. <laughs> no, but like, it was a lot of that where I was yeah, just like, yeah, I totally. thought we were all going to die. And yeah, I was just like, sure. I need to go deep here. And then luckily that was enough of a driver to get to the point where then it was tolerable and then enjoyable. I'm so happy for that. Dude, I'm not anywhere close to being anything in this world, in, in the world of Zen. Like I'm, I'm it's like, it's going to be 20 plus years or longer for me to get really, really deep. But two things, I'm glad I started because I am at the point now where it is enjoyable. And two, I would say that the only thing I've noticed is that Little things that just used to get underneath my skin really don't quite hit me as hard. Yeah. And so those little edges have been sanded down a little bit, those little rough edges. And so I can take a sharp elbow with ease in ways that I couldn't <laughs> before. So I think that's that's the one benefit. And, and, I, and whatever else comes on top of that is gravy and I'm excited for, but you know. It's also super weird, Zen Buddhism. And... I think that that is a more accurate reflection of what we call reality than the kind of clean, abstracted pictures we like to paint of reality that we would like to be the case because it allows us to grasp it and kind of navigate it so much more easily. You know, for that reason... I think that the journey through Zen Buddhism actually has a lot in common with sort of deep study of psychedelics. I think they're very similar because the further you get in, the more you realize nobody fucking knows what's going on. Like this is actually very, very, like the more I know, the less I know in a sense. And I find that very liberating, actually. I find it very liberating. It's like nobody knows what's going on. Okay. Well, right. well as long I, as <laughs> great. my goal is to eventually to get you to to study some Zen. I, I think you would be so you're the perfect person for it because it is there are actual obtainable things. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like in some sense, the whole practice is about obtaining nothing. So it's not like it's like, but the, the fact that there just are checking questions is like I, I'm a kind of, kind of person that wants to check a box. You know, yeah, I want to like that appeals to me oh, for sure. Yeah, I can see that appeal to you as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's good. I mean, it, it has always been of interest to me. I mean, even when I was in Japan, uh, you know, I spent time with 
I remember passing these monks who would be, uh, what is the expression, asking for alms. I mean, they would have to do a tour of mm-hmm. duty where they would ask for money. They would have to beg for their food, if I needed money to buy food. And I would always pass these monks. Not all of them were necessarily Zen Buddhist monks, but I would pass them every day as I was walking back from school and I was 15 as an exchange student in Japan and have spent a lot of time recognizing that Zen is not uniquely Japanese. Although Zen, the word, that pronunciation is Japanese, is a tradition that predates its introduction to Japan. Yeah. I mean, it came from China, right? Initially, like the, the, yeah. it was called Chan. Yes. Before. Something like that. I don't know the character that was used for that. It's probably the same character, actually. Let me just, let me look it up. It's probably the same. Chan. Yeah. Chan. Yeah. Chan. Chan. Second tone. Yeah. So Chan. Second tone in Mandarin and then Zen in Japanese and then in Korean. I guess that's Jun. Jun. Somebody could tell me I'm pretty rusty on my hangul. But my looking at the at the Korean, I think it's Jun, and then we have Vietnamese and so on. What I like most about Zen is that it embraces paradox, because so much of our existence, I think, is paradoxical, and so much of what we want, and so many of our conflicting goals can sort of be symbolized by this word paradox that it's such a fundamental aspect of our existences but it's so uncomfortable to look at directly also because it's not easily put on a shelf and organized and just slotted into some category that you can understand and figure out dude i want you to have a zen master on your show why wouldn't you do that like sam has some great i do that I, I, you should I, have Henry on your show, man. He's amazing. I'd be open to having Henry on the show. I mean, I think part of it is that I I don't feel like I am qualified to ask informed questions about it, if that makes sense. He's had a lot of students also that have dabbled in psychedelics, so he has some good background <laughs> there as well. And yeah. kind of comparing, well, like senior students that also practice Zen and do psychedelics it'd be interesting to draw some yeah more that could be that parallels could be, there yeah and i'm not a even though i support a ton of the science and i'm very involved with the policy and regulation and all sorts of aspects of the psychedelic ecosystem right now i'm not a hammer looking for nails i don't think that psychedelics are panaceas and i mean you're on mushrooms right now <laughs> <laughs> you know, it wouldn't be out of character for that to be the case, but I'm not I'm not on mushrooms right now. You're just casually chewing in the background, yeah, just, just like just chomping on some mushrooms. <laughs> yeah. Like trail mix. No, no, I'm on I'm on the I'm on the hard kombucha kick right now. But I would love to have somebody on. I think that would be a really fascinating conversation because you are I mean, you have such a great background in all things Japanese and obviously the whole space with psychedelics and Japan, all these things that they're all interconnected in some way, you know? Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're definitely interconnected. I mean, I, and also I don't view these tools as mutually exclusive. And I was listening to an interview recently with Dennis McKenna, who I'm going to have on the podcast soon. Dennis McKenna is the younger brother of Terrence McKenna, who is considered the Irish bard of psychedelics. Very, very smart guy, incredible storyteller. Dennis is more of the scientist and the the ethnopharmacologist, phytochemist 
of the two. He's, he's very scientifically literate and understands organic chemistry and synthesis and things like this. And, you know, one of the points that he's made and did make in this interview I heard was our experience of reality is mediated through chemistry and neurotransmitters. Mm-hmm. So when you hear people talk about, say, getting to certain states naturally and arguing that, that is better than augmenting or using psychedelics, the argument rings somewhat hollow when you really start to dig underneath it. And that's not to say that one should not develop self-directed capabilities without the use of drugs or plants to achieve these states. I'm not saying that. But the fact is, when you practice something, unless we're going to go into transpersonal psychology and some really gnarly terrain, which I could do, but what we're talking about is an experience of reality, which is a hallucination that we are creating as the mind applies filters to incoming information to optimize for a few things like propagation of the species. And when you enter in a non-ordinary state of reality, whether it is through ingesting, say, four or five grams of dried mushrooms, in the case of psilocybin mushrooms, psilocybin-containing mushrooms, or doing very dedicated Zen practice, like you are changing the cocktail. 100%. And in that respect, they're actually very close cousins. Although, you know, certainly some compounds and plants, I think, are are better for achieving states similar to Satori Kensho, maybe, than others. Like meth, probably not, right? I I don't think that anyone's going to suggest meth for for coming to terms with some of these deeper realizations necessarily. But I think there's more common ground than not at least for those who make a really deep study of it, like Dennis, as an example, who I really encourage everyone to check out. Very, very bright guy. I'd love to have him on. Henry? I think it'd be great. Yeah, Henry Schickman. Yeah. He's he's done a a couple Q&As with Sam. Sam has him creating a lot of content for Sam Harris's meditation app, so he has a whole dedicated Zen section in there. But I think you'll find him fascinating because he's also really well-versed in all the latest science and studies going on. And especially some of the neuroscience that's happening around the study of emptiness, which is this kind of, Henry can speak to it, but it is like the state, like that Kensho state of, of no thing, like huh. non-existence. Yeah. Mushin. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think you guys would, I, I would be, be very fun. interested. I think mostly and maybe this wouldn't be the case with Henry. I mean, sometimes you can get into kind of dangerous pop science territory unless you're talking to someone like Adam Ghazali. How the hell does he say his last name? Is it Ghazali? Ghazali. Yeah, yeah, yeah Ghazali. Ghazali. Yeah. Side note, who got crazy treatment somewhere in the Middle East because of his last name. Did he tell you this story? No. Yeah, yeah. There's a sort of iconic figure in, I want to say Persian, but it could have been actually in Saudi Arabia or somewhere, in Middle Eastern culture and history was Ghazali, G-H-A-Z-A-L-I. And they saw his name and he landed at the airport and they're like, are you Adam Ghazali? And he's like, yes. And they're like, oh, you don't need to wait in this line, sir. Like you come with us. And he was like, uh, what? <laughs> and Is it going to be really it, awesome or really bad? Really, like, really bad. Yeah. So Adam Ghazali, Gaz Ghazali, I should know this after decades of knowing the guy, but 
is a world-class neuroscientist, right? So speaking to him about science is one thing. I would be most interested with Henry to just talk about his personal experience and to see how well he can describe his personal experience. For me, it's like either, like you got to choose one end of the pole or the other. It's got to be like randomized, controlled studies or personal experience. Like both of those, I'm very open to. It's the stuff in the middle that gets really wonky. And kind of MacGyvered yeah. and and hard. Yeah, to his his descriptions of enlightenment and waking up and some of the they're the best I've ever heard. They're just All like right. cool. Yeah, you will be blown away, and you'll have so many. And you could ask him about the check-in questions because he does that with the students, right? So yeah. he's clearing all the students and how many of them make it. I, I, that'd be really curious. But are, are those off limits? Are those like the level twenty-nine of Scientology where I can't ask that until I? Dude, Clear it's a not bunch a Scientology hurdles? type thing, no. man. It's a- <laughs> I know. I'm just saying, is that like protected knowledge where I can't? I don't think so. Okay. And he can always say, I can't tell you. Yeah. Also. Yeah. Which is fair. Like, I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing. I'm not comparing what you're doing to Scientology. No disrespect to Scientology. I know you guys like to sue people. Don't sue me. <laughs> <laughs> Some of my best friends are Scientologists. So, um, <laughs> but... I'm into it, man. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> I was just about to make some Scientology comments. Uh, Kevin, Ke- I love you guys. Kevin hates you guys. It's uh, definitely. No, I've, I studied uh, for a while and uh, thought it was great. You know, I had a good time there. Good, good uh, buffet on Sundays. <laughs> oh God. All right. Here we go. Into the Thunderdome. We enter. We're both dead next we're week. We're both dead next week. It was nice knowing you guys. Yeah. So where do we go from here? Hard to segue. I would be interested. Yeah. Sweet. So, so I'll do the introduction. Yeah. Yeah. Email intro, Henry. And I'm excited that, for that, this. That'd be this cool. Be fun. I, I'd be into that. I mean, it, it overlaps with so many of my interests. Yeah. And I'm not averse to it. I don't have an aversion to it. The word enlightenment, I'm not going to lie, bothers the shit out of me. Cause you got to say that then bring that up. I'd be really curious to, yeah, yeah. It's just like the idea of, because it just, it creates this bifurcation between like the unenlightened and the enlightened. And it kind of creates this right. priesthood. And I have some fundamental allergic reaction to like this intermediate to the divine, if that makes any sense. And I'm not saying yeah. that is how it is presented within Zen Buddhism, but I do see how that could be used to create power dynamics that are unhealthy. Right. Yeah. So that, that's, that's, that's one of the things that I was concerned with having grown up in a religious household and later, you know, kind of understanding that some of what I was told was not necessarily true, <laughs> but the reason I'm so attracted to, to Zen when we were, we were talking about it earlier is just like, they ask you, it's not about believing what they say. They ask you to taste it for yourself. That, yeah. That's what they say. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I dig that. That's cool. I can get behind that. Awesome, man. Well, please make the intro, and then I'll I'll chat with, with Mr. Henry. What an episode this has been. We've uh, had lightning strikes. <laughs> yeah, We've, te- I almost threw up at the beginning. Technology, yeah, Kevin almost puked in the beginning. Technology was taken down by an act of God. <laughs> right. <laughs> Covered a lot of ground here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good times, man. Well, it's a good hang. Good to spend some yeah. time together. Anything else you'd like to, to mention before we, before we wrap? I asked my wife what we should talk about on the show and she said, how about my podcast? So <laughs> I should, I Go thought that it. was funny one. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. So my wife, Daria Rose, she's a PhD neuroscientist from UCSF 
and she has a fantastic new show called The Daria Rose Show. She's covering some crazy topics, dude. She has other scientists on so they can talk science. You should give some some background on Daria for people who, who don't know. I mean, she has a lot of scientific training, so you should yeah. just maybe explain that for those who may be first-time listeners. Yeah, well, we just talked recently about Adam Ghazali and his lab over at USSF, so she worked with Adam so she's got her PhD from there in neuroscience, studied stem cell biology, and anything above and beyond that is outside of my pay grade. But for her, what she loves to do these days is really focus on how to take science and break it down, like things that we can actually trust and break it down so that the average consumer can understand it. So she has several episodes on like, how can we trust vaccines? Why should we trust vaccines? What does the science actually say? Who should we look for or to for that information? She's going to be covering like birth control and what we understand in the science there. A lot of women's issues as well, how to raise children in a thoughtful way that doesn't damage them forever. <laughs> she had Dr. Andrew Weil on recently, and they talked about how to trust alternative medicine. Oh. Like, what do you know is true out there? Yeah, how like, do you, there's just how so do you much vet BS. That? Yeah. How do you vet that stuff? So I'm just really proud of her. You know, she's just kicking ass doing, she had Andrew uh, Huberman on the show, like you said about the yeah. whole episode on sleep. So many great takeaways there, but yeah, she's done a great job and yeah, Daria Rose show. Yeah. Daria's very legit and very, very smart. Very good at translating without dumbing down also, yeah, which is, that's a great way is to put it. very hard to do. It is very hard to translate without dumbing down. And uh, she does a great job of that. Miss Dardar. <laughs> I know. We need to get together, dude. We need to do a little couples thing. <laughs> Please give hugs to uh, to Daria. People definitely check it out. Anything else? That's it, dude. You can find me at Kevin Rose on Twitter. Modern.finance is the podcast. Or I shouldn't say dot. It's just called Modern Finance. But if you want to go to the website, <laughs> it's modern.finance on the web. And yeah, dude, thanks for having me on. This was fun as always. Yeah, man. Super, super fun. And yeah, for me, I don't have much to say. You can find me on Tim.blog. Everything I do is there. Twitter at T Ferris, two R's, two S's, at T I M Ferris, at Tim Ferris on Instagram. <laughs> Uh, yeah, at Tim Tim Coin is the new coin. <laughs> That's right. I'm going to launch that. I think I'm going to do a Solana oh, coin. God. Oh, Can God. I launch a cryptocurrency under your name? <laughs> Please don't. I just, it's called Tim Tim Coin. <laughs> oh, that'd be, that'd be really great for my liability. <laughs> <laughs> just what I want to think about as I'm going to bed. By the way, just launched two minutes ago, 11, 12 p.m. Tim Tim. <laughs> don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. Yeah, I'll put uh, a ton in your wallet. Oh, what a mess. What a mess. Yeah, I won't do that. But I may do I may do some I may do some NFTs. You should do an NFT, dude. You really should. Yeah. I mean, why not? Right? I mean, like people don't have to buy it. It's like you if you understand it's just a speculative experiment. I'm doing something weird to learn more about it. Why not? Yeah. I definitely bid on your your first Tim Tim Smash Body part. <laughs> Episode <laughs> one. All right, Kev Kev. Well, it's good to see you, man. All right, brother. Good chatting. And to everybody listening, you'll be able to find show notes, links to everything, all the companies, books, compounds, God knows what that we yeah. mentioned, Japanese terms. Sorry, show notes, friend. You'll be able to find it at tim.blog forward slash podcast. And until next time, thanks for tuning in. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, 
This is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? And would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out, and just drop in your email, and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by Viori Clothing, spelled V-U-O-R-I, Viori. I've been wearing Viori at least one item per day for the last few months, and you can use it for everything. It's performance apparel, but it can be used for working out. It can be used for going out to dinner, at least in my case. I feel very comfortable with it. Super comfortable, super stylish. And I just want to read something that one of my employees said. She is an athlete. She is quite technical, although she would never say that. I asked her if she had ever used or heard of Viori, and this was her response. I do love their stuff, been using them for about a year. I think I found them at REI, first for my partner, t-shirts that are super soft but somehow last as he's hard on stuff, and then I got into the super soft cotton yoga pants and jogger sweatpants. I live in them and they too have lasted. They're stylish enough I can wear them out and about. The material is just super soft and durable. I just got their Clementine running shorts for summer and love them. The brand seems pretty popular, constantly sold out. In closing, and I'm abbreviating here, but in closing, with the exception of when I need technical outdoor gear, they're the only brand I've bought in the last year or so for yoga, running, loungewear that lasts and that I think look good also. I like the discreet logo. So that gives you some idea. That was not intended for the sponsor read. Uh, that was just her response via text. Viori, again spelled V-U-O-R-I, is designed for maximum comfort and versatility. You can wear it running. You can wear their stuff training, doing yoga, lounging, weekend errands, or in my case, again, going out to dinner. It really doesn't matter what you're doing. Their clothing is so comfortable and uh, looks so good, and it's, it's non-offensive you don't have a huge brand logo on your face, you'll just want to be in them all the time. And my girlfriend and I have been wearing them for the last few months. They're men's core short, K-O-R-E. The most comfortable lined athletic short is your one short for every sport. I've been using it for kettlebell swings, for runs, you name it. The Banks short, this is their go-to-land to see short, is the ultimate in versatility. It's made from recycled plastic bottles. And what I'm wearing right now, which I had to pick one to recommend to folks out there, or at least to men out there, is the Ponto Performance Pant. And you'll find these at the link I'm gonna give you guys. You can check out what I'm talking about, but I'm wearing them right now. They're thin performance sweatpants, but that doesn't do them justice. So you gotta check it out, P-O-N-T-O, Ponto Performance Pant. For you ladies, the women's performance jogger is the softest jogger you'll ever own. Viori isn't just an investment in your clothing, it's an investment in your happiness. And for you, my dear listeners, they're offering 20% off your first purchase. So get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. It's super popular. A lot of my friends I've now noticed are wearing this, and so am I. 
vioriclothing.com forward slash Tim. That's V-U-O-R-I clothing.com slash Tim. Not only will you receive 20% off your first purchase, but you'll also enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75 and free returns. So check it out. VioriClothing.com slash Tim. That's V-U-O-R-I clothing.com slash Tim and discover the versatility of Viore Clothing. This episode is brought to you by Tonal, T-O-N-A-L. Get ready for the smartest home gym you've ever seen. That's a men's health headline about Tonal, folks, and that gives you the gist. If you're wondering about the smart part, Tonal's homepage also features a quote from the New York Times. Quote, the machine knew my strength better than I did. End quote. More on that in just a minute. By eliminating traditional metal weights, Tonal can deliver 200 pounds of resistance in a device smaller than a flat screen TV. Tonal mounts on your wall with no floor space required. I've had a Tonal unit now for 6 to 12 months, which I got after a number of very close friends recommended Tonal, and it allows me to do things I would normally need a much larger gym for, like cable chop and lift or rotational exercises, things I wrote about in the 4-Hour Body, and it allows me to do these things that are nearly impossible otherwise, like eccentric loading, which I'll mention later. Tonal is precision engineered and designed to be the world's most advanced strength studio and personal trainer. It uses breakthrough technology like adaptive digital weights and AI learning together with the best experts in resistance training so you get stronger faster. So what are these adaptive digital weights? Tonal's patented digital weight system makes thousands of calculations a second to deliver you a smooth weightlifting experience using advanced electronic motor technology. Tonal lets you adjust the weight in one pound increments, something that was never possible with traditional dumbbells. It's easy to dial weights up and down with the touch of a button right in the grip itself. It's pretty cool. Tonal also has built-in dynamic weight modes like chains, eccentric, that's E-C-C-E-N-T-R-I-C, and their patent-pending SmartFlex technology so that you can experiment with more ways to get stronger, faster, without the hassle of extra equipment like chains and bands. And it, once again, fits on the wall like flat screen TV. So you can make the best use out of the smallest footprint in your home or garage, wherever you end up putting it. So try Tonal, T-O-N-A-L, the world's smartest home gym for 30 days in your home. And if you don't love it, you can return it for a full refund. Visit www.tonal.com, that's T-O-N-A-L. And for a limited time, get $100 off of the smart accessories when you use promo code TIM100 at checkout. That's www.tonal.com, promo code TIM100. Tonal, be your strongest. 